0: Hello and welcome to episode 269 of The Crate and Crowbar. It is the 24th of January 2019. I saw those eyebrows, Tom Senior. <laughs> Quiet you. <laughs> it's got a two in front of it, so it's not the yeah, same number. Like so. <laughs> uh, my name is Chris Thurston and I am joined by uh, the eyebrows and indeed the rest of Tom Senior. Yeah, here I am. And all of Tom Francis. Hello. <laughs> I come as a unit. <laughs> Absolute unit. Uh, Tom, you, uh, see, uh, either, I suppose, um, are the, um, bearer of the only news we could think <laughs> of. Is that
1: right? Yeah. Uh, yesterday I saw that, uh, the SteamWorld folks responsible for SteamWorld Dig and SteamWorld Heist have mm. announced SteamWorld Quest, which is, it looks to me like their take on Slay the Spire. Like it's a sort of, um, I don't know if it's a roguelike, but it's, um, uh, a series of fights that you resolve by playing cards and, uh unlike Slayer the spire you seem to have like a little group of people that you're fighting as and i don't know how the actual mechanics work in terms of whether you can like freely switch between them or whether it's um the game decides who gets a turn but the art is absolutely gorgeous it's really sumptuous and it was surprising i'm one of the people who doesn't have a problem with the art in slay the spire i like it but um it was surprising how much of a difference it made to have like super polished, like mm. you know um gorgeously crisp uh, art with very consistent style all the way through just looks really exciting. Well, of course, that maybe even does qualify as news, which is, uh, Slay the Spire is out now. Uh, yeah. Out of early access. I read, um, an AMA with them and, uh, apparently when they launched in early access November last year, uh, basically bombed, like didn't mm. sell hardly anything for the first three months. And then like very slowly the streamers they reached out to started to cover it and they started to tell their friends about it. And then suddenly it just. Up, Are you that. saying that the fact that we've talked about it on this podcast, maybe more than any other game,
0: other people, <laughs> Spelunky and Dota had no impact on, <laughs> on their early month sales at all? Well,
1: I think we, I don't think we started talking about it back then because I didn't discover it till like January after that. Um, right, right. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I don't think I know when it actually came out, to be honest. Yeah. So it's been a relatively short period that we've been talking about it intensively. <laughs> <laughs> and we were responsible obviously for all of its success. past mm. the point. We're influencers now
2: yeah yeah Feels it was good
1: yeah I've, it's one of those successes where like apart from just liking the game a lot I also kind of feel like they earned it because they've been doing weekly updates for like the entire year yeah I think and it's just a crazy amount of work they put into it
0: yeah I mean and if anything though the thing that would have tipped it over the edge would have been uh your extended Slay the spire wanking analogy time <laughs> with, from the
2: mid part of last year <laughs> you want me to sell your game with extended <laughs> wanking analogies available for consultancy <laughs> my fees are extremely high <laughs> i'm delighted it's doing well uh, i um the addition th- the of the third class uh about sort of like mid to late last year showed me that the game still has like tremendous scope for expansion not mm-hmm. just from modders but from the dev- devs themselves and i would happily buy more character classes for that game or you know extra tiers to spire or extra enemies and that kind of stuff yeah um so i really hope to see more from them a very more very um, almost bought it today
0: because I, I think I'm the one of us who hasn't played it because I decided to wait until it was, I tend to wait until things are actually out now mm. generally because it helps make it feel more manageable. The only reason I haven't is because I kind of wanted, you know, to pick up something to play that, uh, I would talk about on the podcast. I <laughs> felt <laughs> like if I showed up and said, Hey, so I finally played Slay Spire and here's everything I think <laughs> about stuff that you guys feel very, have, have
2: trodden over and, and fully consumed and moved past. <laughs> a year ago the thing is though i haven't fully consumed it because it's coming out on switch
0: <laughs> yeah and that means be... that
2: all journeys are fixed forever now yeah that's days, but... yeah that feels like the end point of all game development is <laughs> <laughs> yeah <right. laughs> can i lift it up out of its little cradle and take it to the loo with me <laughs> <laughs> and switch says yes <laughs> no other game platform does i have so many games on switch now that i already own on pc just because i want to play into the breach yeah where, you know carry that onto a train journey or something like that so it's by like there's so much good indie stuff appearing on that platform which for a Nintendo platform is kind of nuts and in many ways
0: it's you know great. I feel like I remember when when we were at uh, the Minis Month event in our Airbnb
2: of course you have Diablo on the <laughs> <movie now>. yeah. <laughs> exactly yeah I, can... I travel with the whole base unit now so like I was in the Airbnb I just set it up, up plugged it into some stranger's television and played Diablo on a massive screen yeah. and I uh, showed Chris how my magic belt breaks the game <laughs> <laughs> and it was very good
0: because yeah, yeah actually, you know,
2: you know because yeah, you can just summon Warframe wherever you are, I suppose. Oh, uh, I've not, I, I, that, I worried about actually dying. <laughs> <I> just of <have, laughs> some kind of overdose of, of, uh, of grindy games. Um, Warframe, I'd have to form yet another account on the Switch, cause I don't think they cross over. It's funny the Switch, I appreciate games, podcast and everything,
0: but get into mm. it. Like, the thing I've realised, like, I very, I very much like the Switch and I very much like the PlayStation 4. And the reason I like the PlayStation 4 is it's basically the best television box. Mm. You know, Mm. it does all the television things. It does all the film things. And that's predominantly what I use it for, really. Like, it's probably one of the devices, you know, I use the most, except my PC. It's just the thing it gets used for is Netflix and Mm. Amazon Prime and and stuff. Whereas the thing about the Switch is it feels like it's the actual game machine in the house because it's (laughs) the one I wish all games were on. Like, I slightly... Resent playing a game at my PC, to be honest. Even though they look nicer on this nice big screen and things, because it just feels nice to you know. I went when I was working through uh, loads and loads of really big deadlines towards the end of uh, November and in December. I just had my Switch on the desk next to me at all times, mm. and in like the. 10 minute break you get while waiting for someone to reply to a message and things you just play Smash Brothers and you're allowed to do that and it's really good and it's right there and then when you're allowed to play big Smash Brothers you just walk downstairs and plug it into the television and, and it continues it's wow. kind of
2: revelatory Smash Brothers is great as well it right? is also great I wish we oh man yeah we, yeah we can't talk about this yeah. <laughs> but they're extremely good uh, yeah I've, I increasingly feel like um, a barrier to sitting up to play a game and uh, to you know mm. having to get into yeah. position for a PC game and it's almost like it feels like more of an uh, more effort more of an endeavour yeah uh, that's ninety percent of
1: the say, of spy addiction for me is I can play it with a gamepad and it mm. works really well with a gamepad. And so I just slouch and. <laughs>
0: yeah, I think maybe that's the reason that for me the the switch feels like such a kind of like logical extent of what console games offer. It's like I remember when I I started playing console games again, it was because I was working on a uh, a bookazine, the worst word in the English language, and I just need like, and I was working on it loads and loads and loads, and so my PC just became a workplace. Yeah, and technically, yeah, I can go to the you know, the taskbar, I load steam and then double click and then I'm in a game. But that wasn't a sufficient disconnect for me to feel at ease. Mm. You know, it's like that's, you know, so I literally started playing Dark Souls on the Xbox because it was something that required me to go somewhere else and sort of like stake out a different area for me to relax in. And I think that's an area that the PC has never been good at is like letting
2: you not feel like you're at work. Mm. To some extent That's interesting and I felt that more intensely as i've as I've gotten older basically mm. I've refreshed my old um sort of desktop setup now mm. so I've got a new chair. that's helped enormously, actually, because my normal sucked. Yeah. Um, So it's now more of a comfortable thing. Uh, I also got a a mouse mat that lights up. (laughs) Why, Tom? Uh, It was a moment of Black Friday madness. I'm not sure I've explained it, talked about it on the pod. But um, my keyboard and my mouse mat and my mouse are all synced up to the same RGB lighting (laughs) piece of software now. And um, I can make them dance and dance. you haven't answered my question <laughs> <laughs> that, I mean, that, that's why it's, it, I made it all glow my first acts was to make it all glow gold because they're, they're like black so I created a kind of like Deus Ex human oh, revolution nice. vibe mm. oh see now I'm interested <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, and there was a moment it, cr- it crossed my mind It's like oh I could get some like little ambient lights out the back of the PC so this whole area just kind of glows with this futuristic Deus Ex you've actually
0: sold me because maybe this is what I was missing like I, I'm getting it back now I don't want to sound like too down <laughs> on the PC like I'm getting back now into the habit of like loading up a PC game yeah, yeah. and playing it for a bit maybe what i need is a full lighting setup which literally transforms the environment from the the gray and the, the sort of like i don't know pale yellow light of work mode to the, the the erratic neon of game mode activated
2: yeah that razor hue of green suddenly switches on the gaming receptors in your brain and it's like yeah time to game <laughs> yeah. maybe 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 that was good branding this entire time. We just didn't know. Yeah, just had a, like, actually,
1: Until you said it, honestly, it hadn't occurred to me that you could use all these RGB things for anything other than showing a rainbow. Like, <laughs> yeah, the idea right. of setting them all to the same color is like mind-blowing. <laughs> Whoa,
2: it could really be nice, actually though. tasteful. <laughs> you can make them... There's there's various settings. I'm not going to go on, on about this for long. <laughs> I'm talking about how my, my keyboard lights up. But you, there's a setting that's just called breathing. And it just does a sinister kind of Doctor Who ebb just on in the background and uh i do quite like it as it, in it's breathing or it's as, following your breathing you no know, well, that'd be fucking strange that's the next level though isn't it yeah no it, it breathes by itself it's its, like <laughs> its own internal life <laughs> much more reassuring yeah uh yeah okay, that's good. that's real strange yeah why did i do that who knows it's cool though it's a very clacky one uh the mouse pad no the yeah <laughs> it is a hard mouse pad and it does clack but the um the, the keyboard's got laser switches that is really loud <laughs> <laughs> there's lasers in the switches for every single key there's a laser mm. uh and when you press the button down uh that's blocking the the laser it shoots through and gives you and registers the key press <laughs> it's absolutely absurd it's amazing how much new
1: technology they can invent to do something we can already completely
2: basic. Code, totally yeah yeah. <laughs> yeah it's it's it was an absurd um flash of madness on black friday but there you go it was heavily, heavily discounted <laughs> Yeah, nah, like mechanical keyboards are amazing, but I've realised this as someone
0: who who works entirely from home now for a company and, and has a lot of like voice chats all day. Mm. I'm really glad that <laughs> there's a company policy to use push to talk voice, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because like in a a 13 person meeting and everyone is like, uh, you know, has a gaming is is sat at a gaming PC with a, with a mechanical keyboard, it's actually a <laughs> <our> problem. <laughs> it's like, deafening. Yeah, there's like you know, it's always been a kind of like, well, the advantages are so great that no one would ever care that this is extremely loud. Anyone who says that has never been in that situation or indeed worked in the PC
2: gamer office and listened to Andy Kelly write a feature. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, the the quite horrifying truth is that the non-mechanical versions are completely fine. (laughs) Honestly, unless you're like gaming at such a high level. I don't think there's really much. Yeah. But they feel nice, but that's it. Yeah. Like I'm I'm shopping for a, for a work laptop at the moment. And um, the
0: fact that you're, you get a keyboard that, it, it, it doesn't sound make sound is like an illicit thrill it's incredible <laughs> and the whole thing looks like it's for a grown-up i was
2: playing uh i was playing hades uh last night mm. which i'm really enjoying at the moment it's just been updated with like uh they've added that's uh, chaos thingies thing you know what i mean super giants third person sort of top down hack and slash roguelike and they uh they added uh like the god of chaos and sometimes you go down into a hole and the the god of chaos is there and they she has has new special boons that hurt you for three rooms but then give you a benefit at the end Hmm. and there's some cool kind of risk reward stuff they're playing with um i'm really looking forward to seeing how that game shapes up because it reminds me a bit of dead cells Hmm. in that i uh, really didn't get along with dead cells kind of whole um sort of structure it's quite an unusual structure uh until much later into its development when it had just been tuned just right. And also once I got a few key upgrades and it unlocked the rest of the game for me. And Hades feels like it could end up being that sort of thing where it's initially quite punishing and maybe a little bit boring, but then you start to see um how you can tailor builds in a way that you don't realise when you first start playing it. So now you can give gifts to gods that will encourage them to show up more often. So you can tailor a build around a specific god that will come and give you a, a specific buff. So if you give Zeus a, a gift... He's more, he's more likely to turn up on your playthrough and give you the cool badass kind of electric hmm. shield throw that you want. Right. Uh, so that's the, the play with some interesting systemic things in that game.
1: I give all my gifts to the Brooklyn skeleton you beat up in the training room. <laughs> <laughs> like, It's the training dummy essentially, but uh, it's a skeleton and he speaks with a kind of Brooklyn accent, yeah. uh, to my ear at least. Um, and yeah, you, you, it's, what is it, like elixir or something or some kind of, like a bottle of something you give to people and then they give you their, their sort of special thing. In yeah, return. yeah.
2: You give them, um, a sort of like hip flask of ambrosia. And That's it. Ambrosia. Just a big old, old mug custard. <laughs> yeah.
1: yeah. And, uh, his thing is actually quite good. It's, it's, uh, saves you from death, um, and brings you back to like 10% health or something like that. Yeah. It's like a tooth or something, isn't it? Yeah. Um, and also, uh, he's very grateful. <laughs> <laughs> They've obviously taken great pains with the writing to make sure it's not weird that you beat him up on a regular basis. Yeah. Like you, the way your character plays it is like, you know, are you sure like you can hit me back and stuff like that? And he's like, no, 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 never.
2: <laughs> I gave them, um, when I first started playing, I gave all of my gifts to Cerberus. So I just love the way they've drawn Cerberus. He's just a big red dog with green nose, <laughs> noses, in fact. And uh it's, it's worth giving everyone one gift because they immediately reciprocate for the first gift you give them. Uh But I didn't realize this at the time. So I was just love bombing Cerberus. <laughs> uh, and yeah, he gives you a spiked collar that makes you harder to kill, which is great. <laughs> And awesome. you can level up the items as well. Anyway, I was... Yeah, i will just talk about Hades now. But yes, yeah, so I, I sort of caught myself listening to myself playing it and it was just like, just like horrendous noise. It <laughs> <Just> was <laughs> the loudest thing. I was like, oh, yeah, it's a shame to the person who lives with me. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Emma. We, we should probably just move on to talking about what we've been uh, yeah. playing then, Good. I suppose.
0: Tom, I know you've been playing a lot of smaller games.
1: Yeah, well, the games themselves aren't necessarily small. i just played a small amount of them. Oh, I see. <laughs> I misunderstood. Um... So I just tried Forgotten Anne recently, because it was a game that was really acclaimed at the time, but but kind of passed me by. Um, And it's really uh, interesting visually. It feels very much like a Ghibli movie. Um, Yeah. And it's about the land where lost things go, basically. Um, But it has, like some Ghibli movies, it's not as kind of cozy and cheerful as that sounds. There's something kind of sinister about the whole place. Yeah. and you are uh, – it's a bit of – I mean, it's good that it's called Forgotten Anne because you kind of know you're going to be playing someone called Anne. And uh, I think I'd seen some art from it, so I knew you played as as a woman. Uh, but if you didn't know that, the whole intro really feels like it's leaving up to you playing a sock for the whole game. <laughs> it would be a brutal disappointment if you really bought into that because <laughs> sadly you don't um, – you play as Anne who is an enforcer in the world of the Forgotten Things where she gets to like just fucking vape – people for, for not being <laughs> what uh, like well it's hard to explain <laughs> but it in involves form. uh sucking them into some kind of vapor basically um like you meant actually vape though. yeah I you vaporize you mean, I yeah you were showing like oh wow <laughs> uh, you don't like you don't inhale them yourself <laughs> <laughs> in the words of bill clinton <laughs> um, and they're all most of the people you encounter are things if that makes any sense so like your best friend's a lampshade (laughs) um and it's not clear to me i suppose it's just like the people there are people who've been forgotten and the things there are things that have been forgotten uh but there's very little distinction between them beyond that um so so her role as i understand
0: it because i know a little bit about it her role is like she's like a blade runner for escaped lamps right that's how i understand it
1: yeah i, it, I think her job is, is more pedestrian than that usually but there's been a fucking terrorist attack on the local hmm. like plant i don't know what the plant does but um is it a plant rebels, or a- rebel forgotten scarves and socks have <laughs> <laughs> blown it up causing massive damage and uh possibly casualties game, and now you're this, hunting them down it's real <laughs> it's it's strange yeah um it's very charming the, the art style is, is so nice and um uh like i said it has that ghibli feel which is which is you know really saying something because not many games have that kind of charm um but it is a platformer at heart and part of the the nice kind of oh i'm watching a nice animated movie feeling comes from the fact that uh your character doesn't ice skate around when you're moving so you know usually because there aren't um like with hand-drawn animation you often don't have like 60 frames per second um the thing is animated at, like. 15 or 20 frames a second and the, but the character still moves smoothly with the frame rate of the game. And that essentially causes a little bit of ice skating mm. and they don't have that, uh, which is nice aesthetically. Um, but you still aren't, you know, animated very smoothly. And that means that you just sort of, there's ambiguity about exactly where you're standing and have you reached the edge of the platform yet? And if you, uh, if you haven't, you shouldn't press jump. And if you have, you should. And if you go, if you, misjudge it you go too far and you don't press jump and you fall off so it's like it hurts it as a platformer and i'm not a huge platformer person anyway and so if your platforming isn't like like movement and and the basics and nuts and bolts of platforming has to be incredibly slick for me to Mm. give a shit at all and so i played it right up until the first jump that i've had trouble making and then i was like okay i think i'm done <laughs> i think i'm yeah. gonna look up like a no commentary let's play of it because i actually really want to see where it goes story-wise and just mm. kind of soak up the um the atmosphere and the visuals and find out about these sock terrorists Take a deep <laughs> breath of that atmosphere <laughs> yeah let's really inhale the, the lost socks <laughs> um yeah so it's kind of a shame that the i wish games were either easy or ha- all had like a super easy mode like just yeah like the mass effect story mode just like don't even think about challenge just trivial just get me through it because i want to see sock facts only please (laughs) yes (laughs) um and i also played uh, i'm afraid i played like all the things that i played a little bit of the reason i played a little bit of them is because i eventually hit a point where i didn't want to continue so (laughs) (laughs) this might end up being a little bit negative um but actually you know wonder song is um uh completely charming game and i didn't stop because i didn't like it i just kind of stopped at some point and haven't got around to getting back to it. But it's an um, extremely colourful uh, on game where you're a guy who sings and you solve all your problems by singing. <laughs> um, and the singing interface is like uh, colours appear in a circle around you. And I'm playing on gamepad so you push a thumbstick in the direction of the of the colour that corresponds to the note you're going to sing. And uh, the puzzles are uh, generally pretty simple in that, like, that it will just come across like a ghost that is they can't talk to you normally, but they can sing like, and as they sing, you see, you both hear the, the note, but you also see it's red, blue, yellow, or if you're colorblind, you could see that it's upper right, lower left, you know, straight left. Um So you have lots of, lots of information to go on. And all you've got to do is repeat it back to them. And that like frees the ghost. And that's what the early puzzles are about. Um But, uh and it's kind of, one of the reasons it's so charming is that, you like your role in this village and how other people see you is very (laughs) informed by the fact you're the guy who just sings at everything (laughs) they find it like slightly annoying but like not um they're still kind of friendly to you um and they have to explain to you that not all of their problems can be solved by singing but actually it turns out quite a lot of them can (laughs) um and i got to later on i don't know how how complex it gets but um i got to a part where like you stand on platforms that as you sing the tone of your singing directs them in space so it kind of like that they're, they're kind of growing on stalks and the stalks grow in the direction of your song kind of thing because mm. you're like i say the notes are on a, a circular radial menu around you so you're actually put kind of choosing a direction as you as you sing mm. and also just like the the singing this kind of sound effect for it is um just uh gloriously like hammy kind of like operatic kind of thing <laughs> like it's really he's really giving it his all at all times <laughs> um yeah so it's it's really nice but i haven't got that far with it um and i also played a little bit of thimbleweed park for the first time i played mm-hmm. it on the ipad because i it sort of was on there and I'm afraid it didn't work for me at all. I can all. imagine those kinds of This adventures not being... Well, actually, I like the interface for, like, pointing and clicking on things, but mm. um it just lives or dies by its humor, and I didn't right. find it funny. Like, one of the early characters you meet is just, like, his joke, and he only has one joke, and it's repeated many, many times, It he just adds areno on the end of things. A bit that's what like to it to the end of things so i'm the sheriff areno. i see you've oh, got a I corpse areno there let's go to the Morgarino, arena that doesn't add joke. a chris remote to the <laughs> <laughs> that'll be weird because <laughs> i heard arena <laughs> <laughs> just every time you're talking about elder scrolls you keep saying elder scrolls arena yeah no <laughs> <laughs> no oblivion um and like that's one of the linguistic clerks of Ned Flanders who, Yeah And it's one of his Least interesting and funny mm. Parts of Of a character from The Simpsons Which is not necessarily The highest bar of humour So it just feels like Just uh, dist- um, Yeah Fell very flat for me And it really Doubles down On its jokes Like it's not a game Where like Oh if your know, jokes don't work For you at least It's an interesting mystery It's like The jokes They ram them home There's one early on That actually was a Half decent joke Until they repeated it Like five times Just to make sure You heard the joke Right Oh god Hmm so those are my small experiences, <laughs> not necessarily small games.
2: What have you been up to, Tom S? I've been playing the very current video game Resident Evil 2. <laughs> well, it is a very current video the game. Resident Evil. It's getting all of everyone's big five star, big
1: numbers. People Can love you- the remake. Okay, that answers my question. Okay. <laughs> Can you explain how this is only number two <laughs> when uh, there have been many and why is it new and what's like compared to say Hitman 2 where you it's Hitman 2. Yes. It, it would take me
2: 15 <laughs> <laughs> minutes to explain why Hitman 2 is called Hitman 2. But. Uh, yes, this is uh, a, a remake and not a remaster, a proper kind of from the ground up, properly rebuilt version of Resident Evil 2, which was uh, a, a game with you know pre-rendered backgrounds mm. set camera angles as a result and it's kind of a survival horror where you have to hoard ammunition and gradually make yourself your way out of a mansion in a town's been beset by by zombies uh, but the interesting thing about Resident Evil is that it's changed genre and almost changed so much and evolved successfully with the years Resident Evil 4 turned it into a close claustrophobic over the, the shoulder third person shooter basically it was mm. an action game more than anything and it was tense and there's they still have some of that kind of ammunition management and difficulty but it was it was also a great great action game you know it's yeah. right and then the series kind of coasted uh on that for a bit up until six and it was increasingly bad uh and then resident evil 7 came out with like a, a really advanced engine and, and it went back to kind of like a much kind of more directed horror experience where you're in a house and it's bad and there's a man with a chainsaw <laughs> and uh yeah it was much more kind of traditional horror movie fair um what Resident Evil 2 remake does is it takes the Resident Evil 7 engine and creates a Resident Evil 4 game that is actually Ooh. a remake of Resident <laughs> Evil 2.
0: <laughs> right. Damn. That so, actually,
2: I know exactly what you mean though. That sounds amazing. Yeah. <laughs> and it is actually kind of amazing. Yeah. That, that's, uh, it, it, especially if you've enjoyed the series from the start and it, enjoyed how it's evolved over the years, this is kind of like an all-in-one package that also has the, that kind of nostalgic value to it. And yet the things they've changed. And the way they've built the environment makes just enough concessions to modern gaming that it's not too frustrating or irritating, uh, which is what the the old Mm. games are now. Um, Instead of inventory Tetris, which is the classic thing of oh, this shotgun takes up six blocks, so you have to kind of rotate it and slot it in here. And uh, now it's just you just have a set number of slots in your inventory, and you pick up pouches that increases the amount of things in your inventory. Um, It's very satisfying, kind of Metroidvania style. Uh, appeal to exploring these quite small spaces actually they're all just a house mm. a big house a big police station but still manageably a house with like three floors and a set number of rooms enough for you to really get your head around it and to run through those environments again and learn it properly uh, and of course as you find gemstones and key cards which is bits uh, of a statue yeah, yeah <laughs> bits of a statue uh that literally is still in there uh and, and plug them into the right places you unlock new stuff and you get like a shotgun you get a pouch and you get that kind of lovely serotonin hit of uh being like oh that inconvenience is slightly less inconvenient now which is Mm. never the like it's not my favorite school of game design that whole like creating loads of inconveniences for the player and then using your upgrades to remove them but actually like the balance and pace of this is pretty much bang on i would say like it's really satisfying and nice Mm. to play looks gorgeous as well like the uh The RE7 engine is super good at lighting and so it's it's able to inject a lot of kind of mystique and detail into these very small environments. So a corridor can look amazing Uh, and the zombies themselves um, are kind of rightly an ever-present threat. They're very, very hard to properly, fully stop. Uh, there's kind of a, a heavy randomization elements where the headshots will actually blow their heads up and stop them. Uh, so you find yourself having this strange kind of relationship with individual zombies in particular corridors where it's like, oh, this is the one where I shot the legs off the guy. So uh, look to the floor in this bit because his legs are gone, but he's still alive. He'll still come after me, but in a particular way. Right, and there's uh, cool. sort of a video like, on Twitter of who shot both legs and both arms off a zombie, which takes a lot of ammo, and really. you want to preserve ammo in this game. So they really went after that particular zombie <laughs> in that particular part of the mansion, and it was just kind of like wiggling like a snake towards him, and it was hor- horrifying, really <laughs> scary stuff. Uh, but I, I love that they're, they're supposed to be this ever-present thing. You're not supposed to just be able to walk to a corridor and be safe in Resident Evil. That's what walk, mm. the safe rooms are for, and it, it captures that really well. Uh, so I'm, I'm uh, just about three hours into it, and uh, uh, our Andy Kelly has reviewed it and loved it. I uh, gave it a big, a big score. Just uh, And I, I really agree with him because it's um, the Peace Gamer style score guide. Like in, if you're going into the 90s, there is a clause like, oh, it's got to kind of move gaming forwards in some way. there has got to be something really new here or exciting. And none of it is that. But as a kind of a, a, a collection of the best bits of... All the design that's gone into that series over a period of 15 mm. years. It's a super well judged and well made and satisfying thing to play. Um, and I'd recommend it to horror fans as well as Resident Evil fans. But if you're a Resi fan, it has that extra, that extra nice kind of flavour to it, that an extra nostalgia and it's clever. It's really nice. Mm. Sounds rad. Yeah. I think people
0: underestimate as well. Like, well, that's what they don't really do, but like, um, Resi 4 is so instrumental in like the, like determining the vocabulary of like so many subsequent action games Mm, that's true like new tomb raider owes so much to resident evil 4 Mm. like uh, you know the only thing maybe that would even share that debt is gears of war like those two games feel like they came along a few years apart but not very far apart and sort of like quietly determined how non-first-person action games were going to
2: work for like the subsequent like 12 to 15 years, which is completely nuts. Absolutely. Yeah, so many games, like, um, the division through, like, the, the, the use of a narrow-ish kind of camera, um, what's the word? Field of view. Yeah, with uh, and the requirement that you aim and have to shrink that field of view and shrink your peripheral vision is, has become just a widely used industry standard. Mm. And Resi Resident Evil Four is one of the first things that games to really make use of that. Um Slow turning circles by Dead Space. I mean, there there are so so many games that that like was like Something I'd be curious about in adapting that for um, for to Resi Two is is
0: a, <laughs> a thing that I probably didn't pin down at the time, but I like about the older Resi games, which were very much like past the pad almost collaborative experiences when I was a kid, right? Like those are some of the earliest PlayStation one games I played. And, and that was because you'd, you'd, you know, sit with a friend and try and figure it out. Mm. And actually structurally, they, despite the violence and the horror element and the survival element, they have quite a lot in common with point and click adventures. Like they're very much screen based. It's very much about what can I find and do on this screen that I can take to this other screen and apply to, this area to progress right mm. like even the, the logic of a resi puzzle is is far closer to monkey island than to doom yeah sure say, mm. despite them both being experiences where you find key cards mm. um and there's something about that uh quality that means that like those environments become um those screens in resi one and resi two uh, and like code veronica and resi three i think yeah like all have like um they all gain like you're you sort of come to know them really well and they have like a really specific like i i haven't seen much of the remake but there are going to be screens i think from the early part of resi 2 that i know so well yes they're like ingrained in my mind mm-hmm. and they provoke a particular atmosphere the moment you see them again i guess long-winded question but the question is is that sort of almost that nostalgia or that sense of attachment to a very particular
2: environment retained when you go to a third person over the shoulder uh, absolutely. retelling yeah absolutely I think that's one of the th- th- things they've done really well they- they've remixed and added rooms and stuff but they've kept elements and kept specific visual elements mm. like the um, the lobby of the police station um, and the screen aspect you mentioned is so doors are a really big deal in this game Like, so yeah. it- it's it's hard for zombies to come through doors. If they're motivated enough, they'll do it. Uh, if you shoot their arms off, they can't. But doors are a big barrier that kind of, re- you can find safety by quickly running through a door and suddenly a period of quiet resumes and then you're back in the exploration space. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there will be dormant zombies around. They might not be dead. They might not come back to life. They might grab your feet or they might get up all of a sudden with sound cues. But basically, you get that feeling of tension, and then suddenly having to escape, and then being in a safe place and being able to explore it again. And the the, uh, the way the game is structured means you have to go through environments several times, often uh, in like increasingly complicated loops, unlocking new things and stuff like that. So you really do get to know the environment. Um, the only things they've really changed are in the map. uh Rooms, I really like this. Uh, rooms are coloured red if you haven't found everything in the room. That's good, uh, okay. it's, which I find brilliant because. Uh, first of all, it doesn't have object glint in the way that the old games had to have in order to attract your attention in a mm. low res, uh, pre-rendered background to, to items that you need. So uh, it would look absurd in uh, a game with this kind of level of visual fidelity and realism to have objects Ooh, glinting like that. <laughs> Wow. <laughs> what a shiny key card over there that like I can see from literally space because <laughs> it's a fucking <laughs> laser beam coming out of it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and so yeah, so they get around that by saying, well, you, this is red. You haven't looked at everything yet, but also if you think you have, you think, well, there's a secret there. There are safes everywhere with little codes. And you just know that somewhere if I look hard enough, I might find that. And a lot of that stuff's optional. Like a lot of it, it yes, just has good, cool. cool, like extra ammo, which is vital pouches and stuff like that. Um And there's a brilliant room, which is just like a weapons room. And it's a, a series of lo- uh, locks lockers. And you need a key card next to them all. And you need to enter, enter the right code for each locker to open it individually. Mm. But there are two keys on the key card missing. And somewhere in this mansion, somewhere in this police station, those things are are, are lurking. And I found one of them. I don't know where the other one is. And uh, yeah, it's just really, it's kind of addictive. It's really kind of, it just really draws you into the whole item gathering and Mm. item kind of utility stuff. How does the the story stuff hold up? Because that is a series renowned for its ham. (laughs) I think it's still, it's still super ham. But it's like, there's, I always, there's a B movie kind of fun Mm. to the Resident Evil series when it's going right when it's doing its thing right and uh, I think it has captured that I'm not far enough into it to really see how the story holds up that like the uh, Resident Evil series a bit like many and a bit like too many series that have gone on for perhaps a few too many entries just to kind of can implode under the weight of its own lore and, mm. and characters and T-viruses and Z-viruses and Wesker and his various monstrous forms and like so far it's quite it's quite stripped back and because it's just the second game remade it's just a couple of characters in it and yeah, that, and that is and and a, a spooky place. That's what well, that's what Resident Evil should be about, really. That's what Resident Evil Seven was about as well. Mm. It's, just, it's interesting that they went back to remake two rather than one. Yes, although I mean there is a remake of one, which is zero. It's, it's basically a remaster, so they just <laughs> but that were, was remaster, yeah. yeah right? So that, that was very much like, well, we're just we're not going to change the design much at all. We're just going to refresh all the visuals. Whereas this is a proper, well, let's sort of try and fuse all these eras into one game. Mm. And they've done the fact they've done it successfully is is super satisfying. It's very good. Awesome it's good to. No, that's actually jumped up my list now. Mm. i have to play that. Lovely. Uh
0: so I have I've been playing uh, I just started playing today because it came out. Uh it came out yesterday as you're listening to this, but today as we're recording this, um Battlefleet Gothic Armada oh, yeah. 2. Um and uh, which is a uh Warhammer 40,000 space strategy game. Mostly real-time battles but with a grand strategy element. But uh the best way to visualize it, I think uh, would be to imagine a scenario in which Cologne Cathedral had a passionate and very physical love affair with a tugboat. <laughs> and <laughs> yeah, then the very uh, angry offspring of this union, uh, decided to do cool drifts on an icy car park <laughs> in order to assert dominance over each other. Um, it is essentially a game of, um, kind of, uh, positioning and timing and strategy, um, on a 2D plane um starring the like the Warhammer forty thousand universe most overblown starship <laughs> designs. Yes. And I so far, so I've only played I played the prologue campaign, which isn't especially long and is very much a tutorial hmm. and the first mission in a bit of uh the first campaign. There's several campaigns there's different races, so the first part, of the Imperial campaign. And I'm really, really enjoying it so far. Mm. Um, you've played a little bit of it as well, Tom. Haven't you? Yeah, I
2: played the pro. Uh, of a, yeah, I played the prologue, and I've played uh, a bit of the Tyrannid campaign. Mm. And uh, the prologue is hilarious. It's so good. <laughs> so this is. So
0: I don't know how to start with this. So I want to, I want to dig into why I, I like it a lot as a game. But one thing that's really struck out at me about it, and I don't know if it's a change in policy or something like that, but there, there are a lot of Warhammer games. There mm-hmm. are a tremendous amount of Warhammer games. There's, there's, the, and there are, most of them are Warhammer 40,000 games. Mm. Um, you know, it doesn't feel like it's that much time on the pod between a Warhammer game coming up, whether that's Mechanicus recently or Gladius or, you know, Vermintide or any number of the other ones. Yeah. But for the most part, the games, like a lot of licensed Warhammer materials, steer really quite clear of whatever the main story of the current generation of miniatures and tabletop games and books is. Mm. Um, you know, so the Dawn of War series, um, which tells a long story of its own, tells that story in a pocket of the universe that feels like it kind of owns. And even though like the space Marines that start in the Dawn of War series are considered to be canon, those characters never show up anywhere else. (laughs) And it feels like they belong to Relic and Relic just put them in a box. Like, and, and at other times, usually they'll just like invent a new planet for the game to take place on. And, you know, it never really feels like, um, I always assumed that a licensee for games workshop doesn't get that doesn't get to play with the big toys when it comes to characters and situations and things yeah and then battlefield gothic 2 and even battlefield gothic 1, first one did as well yeah did interacted with it a bit but even that yeah. f- then felt like very much its own thing right
2: like off in its own pocket of the universe and also that, that came out like quite close to when eighth edition the, the latest edition of Warhammer yeah that's it came out as well so maybe they didn't have quite the same chance to incorporate it all but now yeah whereas sure. this is actually f- like it, as So I, I would love to see what someone
0: who didn't love this fiction already made of that beginning, <laughs> yeah. because the prologue is essentially you playing through various perspectives on an event that is huge in the modern Warhammer 40,000 fiction. It actually happened as part of like a live event, the, the equivalent of a live event in a tabletop game where the story is told over successive supplements, basically, and sort of unfolds. Yeah. Um, that led to the edi- the launch of the eighth edition of the tabletop game, and and the timeline skipping ahead a bit, and, and all of this stuff. Those events are fully realized in the start of Battlefleet Gothic, at like at, um through a mixture of in-game stuff and painted cutscenes that like bring that stuff to life, and it is very silly, but I love it bring that stuff into life in a way that I don't think I've seen mm. like anywhere else. Like it's partly like the best Warhammer 40k cartoon I've watched. Yeah. <laughs> which is That's kind really of the nuts. I just really wasn't expecting that. I was expecting to like it cause I like the fiction, but seeing like, um, those events and then getting the, I realized I had like the proper nerd goosebumps for like the first half of it mm. because, you know, and I think i get to the mission that we're probably going to talk about from the prologue, but, um, the, uh, the prologue, this will mean something to the Warhammer Nerds around the fall of Cadia, hmm. which is an event that happened in the fiction like two years ago in real life. So within the span of development of this game and it kind of brings it to life. And I think one of the reasons they might've been able to do this is because the, the tabletop game has never spent a lot of time thinking about the space stuff. Like the story, it, it features a lot in the stories, yeah. but, and uh, specific things that happen in space matter. But for the most part, for, for obvious reasons, there hasn't been a get Battlefield Gothic tabletop game in, in in decades. You know the actions confined to the ground. So in making a space game, they have the freedom to like refer to things that are happening in the ground and but tell their own space business. And it's really gratifying, mm-hmm. like just having like an offhand comment from a character that kind of refers to something that's happening on the ground and so on. Um, and you know, one mission in the prologue maybe mine is I'm, I'm spoiler, but has you wait for reinforcements. And knowing what that story was and knowing what those reinforcements were likely to be mm. was like a genuine, like, I wonder if they're going to do this. I wonder if they're going to do this. And essentially it's, are they about to put me in charge of a, a flying battle monastery, the size of a, like a little moon? And the answer is yes. <laughs> <laughs> and are they going to ask me to crash this into like an ancient alien space gun? that happens to look like the chaos logo, but that's a coincidence. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah. It's hard to, I don't have to like get across the absurd scale of the two things in that fight. Mm. In this, so it's like, it's the equivalent of, um, so you, you, you've got all your units in red alert and they're running around and they're the size of they are. you've got your big tanks and then something turns up. That's the size of your base. That's, yeah. that's what it's like. It's like, Oh, it's a floating base that's made of cathedrals and lasers yeah, Exactly, <laughs> and now he gets very angry thing, it's extremely angry and uh it turns up and all the chaos ships start moving towards it and then they suddenly like they're not moving in to engage us, they're moving to charge us. So you get this absurd thing where you, this thing, the size of your base is moving very slowly towards the <laughs> other big thing on the map mm. and all the chaos ships just, uh, it's, it's a kind of spoilery, I guess, but they're, they're plunging into it and exploding. And it's the, it's, I, I it's, was actually like laughing out loud. Uh, it it so me good. too. <laughs> it's so good, particularly because
0: um you can, you can give like the all ahead full order right, yeah. to the the flying monastery, at which point the giant engines on the back of it, like flare to life. Because <laughs> the space Marine in charge basically says like, fuck it like <laughs> yeah. all, all a head full and you just poof. it's like that universe is deeply silly in a lot of ways but there's something so specific about its aesthetic like it is mm. it is still it is strange to me that it's like the way it, you it, very early in the imperial campaign it, in term, in game terms the the imperium is divided into three factions the the imperial navy the adeptus Astartes, the space marines and the adeptus mechanicus uh, the nerds yeah and that is literally what they break down into yeah it's like you've got kind of like the preppy naval officer and like there's lots of different characters but they're all basically the same mm. which is like preppy naval officer jock space marine and the dork who, who who's covered in dendrites and like speaks like this a bit for the glory of mars and like and it's so good for some reason like this sort of like high gothic camp mm. and seeing it all to come together like particularly given how intimately tied to what feels like the the live story of that universe is like genuinely like a huge guilty pleasure, mm. particularly because um, it does things like um, it's, it's also far more like um, cosmopolitan in how much of that universe it brings together than like a launched dawn a war game, for example. Yeah. Like, I don't know. I don't think every you've played every faction in the campaigns necessarily, mm. but you know, I loaded up the multiplayer menu just to look, and it's like... It's huge, right? It's huge, and, like, within every faction is dozens of sub-factions. And so the fact that, like, you know, you can pull up, you know, the Adeptus Mechanicus and then pick which forge world you're, you want your fleet to be from, and it changes their, you know, coloring and, and, and sort of, you know, aesthetic appropriately, mm. and do that for Eldar, you know, Necrons, Space Marines, Space Marines, is, like... A genuine,
2: regardless of the game itself, like that just is like a big old fan servicey treat super really good like it they've um they've redone the way campaigns work now, so they're almost like a sort of mini forex campaigns where you yeah. like nodes that you capture and it's not too complicated, which is good uh, but it's, there's a little bit of resource management there's a little bit of kind of fleet management um and i'd really like that as well and I, I'd love to see them almost like incorporate the Factions that are starting the campaign in the first game into the second. Mm. Uh, so you, you've got three campaigns. You've got, uh, in addition to the prologue, you've got the Imperium, uh, Imperium. you've got uh, Necrons and you've got the Tyranids. And they they all seem like quite lengthy campaigns when you've played them throughout. Uh, and it feels hopefully as though you'll meet a lot of the factions like the Orcs and the Eldar that you don't necessarily get to play as in the campaigns yeah. as, as part of that. But I'd like to see them kind of just expand it and bring all of that into the Yeah, me too. I mean, I, like,
0: I really, um, I really like that they, you know, for example, have decided to, to bring out because it's actually it's not the obvious three. Like I no, feel like Imperium not- are going to be in everything. Yeah, but um, you know, it's there's been a lot of there have been a lot of 40k games now that focus on like Eldar and Orcs, for mm. example, because they're probably the more from, recognizable. So getting like, I mean, I like Necrons, so I'm mm. very happy to see Necrons done. Yeah, done, done right, particularly because if you haven't been into Warhammer for a long time and you remember Necrons is basically just. Space undead, which is what they functionally are. The fact that they made them sassy a couple of years ago. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. now they're really sassy. And they lean into that pretty and hard as well. They do. Kind of... Um, and that's why it's so cool is that, you know, it's not just like, it, it's not just any, you know, Necron that features in the campaign quite heavily. Hmm. It's Traz and the Infinite who, who collects people, freezes them in time and then throws them like Pokemon <laughs> to solve problems, <laughs> <laughs> which is the best thing to do if you're a floating robot skeleton wizard. Um, the thing I think about it though, and, and having come out of that prologue, I, uh, adjusted to this, but like, I have no idea what that series events would mean to you if you weren't familiar with them already. Mm. That's my only, I mean, I'd like to, if if someone, if you have played it and you didn't, you know, you, you don't know what the fuck is going on and you enjoyed it anyway, I'd like to, or if you didn't, I'd like to actually know what yeah, made definitely. of it because, because like it is. I probably, I think a little bit too guilty of being like enjoying what it's winking at. And when you, when you know that story and you know why it's significant that like, there's, there's a, like a, a cut scene early on where like a guy is, you know, it looks like the planet's in peril. And then a little Adaptus Mechanicus nerd man in his little hat is like going like shunting augmented power. The augmented power is here, I think, or something. And then it zooms out to reveal that scattered beetles are helping him. And a skeleton is looking in from the side of the room like, hmm, yeah. what does that mean? And then a big force field appears and the planet is okay. And I know exactly what that means. Mm. But I would forgive anybody for having no fucking idea what is going on. And it doesn't explain any of it at all mm. to the point that it almost relies on you having read either a wiki page, which is more likely. Or, or several. Like f- <laughs> several books. Several books <laughs> yeah. worth of 40k back matter. So That's true. That's just story stuff, but... I don't know. I, I guess maybe if you just enjoy the bizarre, the richness of it, like the kind of exuberance of it, then there's something there. But
2: it's it's likely absurd. I think the skyboxes. Skyboxes is a weird term for it's space big space objects. In <laughs> big space. space objects in <laughs> space. space, space. Box. And uh, and one of them is just you know uh, the, some of the more epic scenes. They just the skybox just full of ships, and it's actually like. It's not a big-budget game. You feel as though... Yeah. Uh, it, it, it's, it's a manageable-budget game. It's a manageable-budget game. Yeah. <laughs> so you kind of feel its limitations as you're watching it. But the kind of... The, 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 that they've attempted it so earnestly. And uh, helps me to buy into it and be like, yeah, yeah it is big. I think there's something to be throw. said for, like, whenever you see something not... It
0: matters when something specifically is rendered. Like, they have a... You know, they really... They actually show the warp, which is cool. Mm-hmm. Like, you see... Yeah. Um, you know, if you're not familiar with Warhammer forty thousand, the equivalent of hyperspace is basically you go into hell and then you come back out of hell mm. wherever you want your spaceship to go. And most I, I can't really think of a forty K game that does anything other than show ships vanish into the warp and come back out of the warp mm-hmm. again. And I know it's me talking about things exiting hyperspace, but <laughs> it, it hap you know, but there's a great scene where you see a ship exit the warp from its perspective, exiting basically a a purple demon realm full of huge grinning faces leering out of vast cosmic nebula. And then that that rips away to plonk them in the middle of a huge space battle taking place
2: between angry cathedrals. And it's like, <laughs> yeah, this is great. <laughs> like, yeah, it's really I, good. I, I see that. And I got a massive kick out of it as a fan. And it also makes me think someone one day must sling a few million dollars at a film that will probably properly do this and yeah. go all in on it. And, man oh, it God. might be bad it will, would be like I will watch the fuck out of it. it would be the you know it needs the Jupiter ascending treatment <laughs>
0: yeah yeah <laughs> um, get all yeah it. the there's um, and then he does stuff like uh, have you played any of the Imperial campaign the Imperium campaign I played them um, I think the first sort of hour of it right because quite early on it starts actually using art from like classic Warhammer supplements it uses art from mm like the really early uh, Horace heresy art and stuff and does animatics based on yeah, it. It's nice. like, oh man, it's great. Although it has been disconcerting to learn how loads of names are pronounced. <laughs> oh no. It's definitely Horace, which oh, sounds what? a lot like Horace. He's saying Horus. <laughs> yeah. But yeah. Horace it's heresy. definitely, um, it's definitely <laughs> How lemon- could you Horace? It's, it, it's oh, the, the, the space wolf primark that I thought was Lehman Russ I is apparently that. Lemon Roos. Oh, come on. <laughs> no. Which sounds like something you make on Bake Off. Roos.
2: Lemon. It's ruse, They, they say Roos. Oh, it's that's it's really rough. weird. It's really weird. The, the, but you just know Games Workshop will have had the official stamp on that stuff. So yeah, I know it's probably right. I'm, I'm it's disturbing. based on what happens later in that story, no
0: spoilers. I'm dreading what happens when Reboot Lemon shows up. Oh How yeah, the fuck damn. do you say that? We'll find out. Good point. <laughs> um, it's going to have, it's going to have more significant ramifications for miniatures monthly than it does for this podcast, but like, yeah, enjoy our segment on that. Yeah. Like see. <laughs> yeah. Um, we should talk about what you actually do in the game. Because I've talked mm. about what it means in terms of pictures of spaceships, which I'm a fan of, but nonetheless. Yeah. Um, how would you sign up, oh, Tom? I'd be curious to see your take on it as an RTS.
2: Um, so there's no base building or anything like that. Basically you tend to have like quite a small fleet of three or four ships. Uh, but it's about m- micromanaging the subsystems of those ships and their sub abilities, uh, to the extent that actually you can uh, quite happily put a lot of the, your fleet on a, on autopilot and mm. have them just do the manoeuvring in their own ranges themselves uh, and then basically just micromanage their their sub so you can launch fighters and stuff you can launch bombers and you can launch various types of torpedo you can uh, you know attack them with certain various types of lasers if you're within range you can launch boarding actions of various different kinds uh, and it's it's about intense micromanagement of very large lumbering ships some escorts that help and do sort of like recon and scanning and debuffing and stuff like that. But for the most part, the decisive stuff is happening on your big capital ships. Mm. Um, and yeah, the UI is terrifying for the, for the, for the battles. But once you kind of spent a couple of hours with it, it kind of starts to click. Into yeah. Place. I think it's pretty good actually for them. Cause I mean, the
0: way I think the thing that's scary about it at first is, so the game is, you're right. The game is split between, um essentially what i would describe as sort of in the moment or reactive decisions mm-hmm. like there's a lot of things that are like triggered abilities like in uh like in a an uh a uh, uh, rpg or an mmo or something like yes. you know if you hover over the button to uh fire boarding torpedoes which is the best the best idea it's a torpedo for the man <laughs> you have two torpedoes torpedo full of gun torpedo full of man if you fire a, a torpedo full of man it goes sideways Hmm. it goes sideways if it hit enemy ship a fight takes place inside that ship you'll never see and you find out how many of those their people died and how much of a morale problem this was Hmm. how unhappy they are following the arrival of torpedo man and his friends um and when you hover over that you can see the side arcs and you trigger it and you choose a target and so on and then uh you also have torpedo uh, of gun, which goes forwards. And when you hover over that, you'll see the forward trajectory because they'll fire out basically linearly. And they're essentially projectiles. They're almost like action game projectiles. Mm. You have to, there's no picking a target for that. You just launch them and they start going in that direction. And if you have positioned yourself cleverly and you know exactly where you are, hopefully you'll either block off an enemy's movement in a particular direction, forcing them to turn, or you will, um, hit them, which is good because they're, that they they go, they go back. Um, so that's, you know, that's the sort of like, that's the sort of, but that's only like some of the buttons on the screen. Mm. And the reason it's scary is there's fucking loads of them. But the thing that's cool about it is the rest of them are also like, there's like almost like different orders of how regularly you need them. Cause then the the opposite end of that is on the, on the left-hand side of the screen, you're basically configuring the priorities for the AI for a given ship. Yeah. Cause you are encouraged to use functionally the autopilot. Mm. And it's like, it's like setting up a, like a final fantasy gambit on the fly you basically say engage at this range um, with this facing, prioritize these guns. So you can just say like attack however you like at longest range, but you can also say only use your starboard. You know, I want you to attack, but at medium range and only with your starboard guns. And then the AI will plot a course for itself. That means mm. that it sticks near the target yeah. doing that. You can then on the fly, change a ship to say, actually attack head on because you want to necessarily use the torpedoes in a bit. Mm. And so you set that up in advance and kind of keep it ticking over. And I really like that as sort of like on the fly, almost like programming the different ships. Yeah. Cause you can leave them and they'll probably do something approximately right. Mm. But those buttons are just for optimizing the approach. And then you've got like some specific things, like you have a, a bar that you can burn to either like boost the engines or boost your turn rate and that kind of thing. So you can like temporarily go and that adds this really cool, like sometimes almost like, um, action sort of based thing. Like if a, if a, if an enemy ship goes critical and it's going to blow up, you see, like, a ring around it, and that's the size of the eventual explosion. And then another ring starts to fill out from the ship, and when it reaches the edge, the whole thing blows up. So that's when you want to give emergency orders to your ship to, like, do a hard burn to turn, and then a full engine burn to try and get out. And that creates these, in addition to, like, the planning element and the triggering damaging attacks and and that kind of thing, in between, there's this element of, like, interesting, like, emergency maneuvers and things Mm -hmm. to avoid obstacles or get out of explosions, which feels like um a very effective um realization of of that fantasy of you know what's going on in a big starship during a space battle and i think for me as well that's what justifies it being a space battle on a 2d plane rather mm-hmm. than like a home world style yeah, yeah. 3d thing because i think with that degree of like three layers of complexity it would just be overwhelming to then expand that up in 3d mm-hmm. like it benefits from you can pause and zoom in and out and get an absolute sense of where everyone is relative to each other because ultimately they're like pieces on a table.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And then it reminds me of how certainly complex home world is really, because uh, when you launch boarding parties and um, attack uh, fighters and bombers, the tiny little craft, the little flies buzzing around that have to go and, Buzz around other ships. Mm. In, in home worlds, you have to micro those guys. <laughs> and in this, you just press the button and press target and they'll just go off and do it and the bombers will come back and it's fine. Basically, like, you don't have to worry about it. It Automates the right parts of the battle. It feels to me. Yeah. And actually leaves the actual decision making to you. Uh, there's, there's some, the stuff I dislike is actually kind of like scenarios, things like that. Like mm. the capture point stuff doesn't quite make sense to me f- for that type of game. It's good. To, uh, maybe like capture points in themselves aren't bad, but it will have like five seemingly randomly placed not like blobs and yeah. then your ships have to go and rush to them. Where and yeah, I don't know, like it's, that never feels quite right to me. Um whereas the more structured missions and the story campaigns have felt a bit more satisfying. Um but I do really like the the variety between the different fleets. Mm. Like they're what they're good at and bad at is really well defined. Uh, so the tyranids are about getting really close and literally just eating ships. <laughs> uh, they're, they're surrounded by all these kind of buzz, buzzing flies, which is kind of just a good job of implying that they're actually You know, millions of little smaller tyrannies just swarming around these bigger ships. And when they get close, the flies just go off to the, and attack the enemy vessel. And it's like, you're just kind of catching up with them as they're trying to turn away. And some of them have this disgusting move where they just throw out a, a horrible tube. Just latches onto the enemy and just starts sucking their morale out. And uh, who knows what the hell, the hell is really going on there? Like, in terms of deck by deck, no one wants to know. Morale as a kind of concept in this is, is,
0: is very good. Yeah. It's is yes. like, are the men, are the thousands of people that live inside the spaceship happy? The answer is probably not. Very much. <laughs>
1: but very much Honestly, much. the longer the proboscis is there, the less happy we are. <laughs> exactly. Uh,
2: they, let us uh, say we hate that tube. <laughs> they can self-destruct into a cloud of spores that eat spaceships. Oh, no, no. Which is very good. Uh, also OES. They, yeah, they've they uh it's, they've done a good job of um, differentiating the factions. So the Imperial faction is a kind of good mid-ground between like, artillery and, and firing. Chaos, like as in the uh, uh, tabletop game, are very good at range. They've got really amazing artillery and long-range, kind of crazy big-shot stuff. Uh, and then Eldar are just very tricky and hard to kill and very fast. And Orcs, uh, I feel, have been a bit screwed over in this edition, perhaps, because... <laughs> They get eaten by It's Like, the whole thing with orcs is that they just charge in and smash stuff, like, hmm. at close range, and the tyrannies just eat them. They just eat them. <laughs> it's, it's, just, it's tragically true of the, the War Warhammer 140,000 universe as well, but... Uh, well, yeah. those two are destined to kind of consume each other. Like, <laughs> yeah, that, for sure, yeah. And the orcs, at least, will seem happy about it. Like, yeah, <laughs> a exactly. glorious death.
0: Yeah, I haven't really dug into the ground strategy layer much yet, And mm. it, but um, one thing about it that I, I didn't realise is that, like, it's really not a series of... It's probably obvious, but it's not a structure. Once you get out of those tutorial missions, it's not really a series of structured battles. It's, no, no. It's matches, essentially. Like, like a, like a Total War campaign or like, um, like a linked tabletop campaign, mm-hmm. you say, I'm going to deploy this fleet here. It has this force composition, which is essentially its point value and you take on whatever fleet is there. Um, and if you defeat them according to several victory conditions, which are just sort of generated for you then you take over that sector it's not like yeah. an rts campaign or something like mm, that and no, no. i actually quite like that the thing i like about that is i feel like um i've only just started playing and i i hope i'll, I'll stick with it and I, I definitely want to play more but um it feels like more like an XCOM campaign or something where you can probably drop in and just play like a map yeah you yeah. know do a, a round um and then Uh, drop out again and talking about it being um reasonably scoped i think that's a really sensible decision if you are developing an rts game for how to structure a campaign Mm. because it allows you to focus on the fundamental systems of the game rather than having to design you know let's say 25 hand designed missions for the course of a scenario and obviously if you are blizzard you can do both Mm. but if you're sort of developing an rts then getting the battle the fundamental battle game like the matched play i've used a warhammer term but like battle game down and just building a meta campaign around that that makes gives those games a bit of context is a smart way of doing it to me yeah i'd much prefer that like it's the
2: old um dawn of war expansion was it dark crusade yeah Uh, right yeah and that is flaws but i'd much rather that over a you know a a linear thing blizzard i think that's way better uh starcraft Two's campaigns always struck a really nice balance. Actually, here for where they yeah. do have like again, this is Blizzard cash helps. And uh, well, I was uh, going to say it's almost like right. they only get through it because of the sheer investment of time and money it took yeah. to get through it. And it seems like super hard to design satisfying RTS missions. I can't think of many that are, like a handful that are really outstanding. I mean, there'll be a few like Warcraft Three, which I need to play. Um, there's a, f- a couple of Company Hero ones. Copy of Heroes ones I would mentioned but like actually a really great handcrafted RTS mission is pretty hard to come by uh, so the idea of actually just making it more of a sandbox maybe it's just a smarter thing to do yeah one of my
1: favourites in RTS campaigns actually was in um, not Dark Crusade but the next one the Sisters of Battle one.
2: Oh, yeah uh, mm-hmm. Soulstorm. Soulstorm yeah
1: um, and it's against the Sisters of Battle and they have a I don't know the Warhammer term for it but an angel <laughs> <laughs> a living um, saint and the angel makes everything near it invincible Mm. and you have like these four shrines you've got to destroy to win the mission and whichever one you go to they just show up with their angel and now it's invincible and they're invincible and so the only way to do it is to pretend you're going to attack one of them but send your real force to the other one and uh, wait for your like mock force to arrive and lure the angel there and then immediately strike on the other one and i did that And I was like, wow, I just used a tactic (laughs) in an RTS game. And this is like, that's one now. That's a track record, life history of using tactics in RTS games. I've used one tactic. And that was it. (laughs) Right, rather
0: than build many things.
1: Yeah, I mean, like unit compositions, I had to do that. Like, I will use it, we'll make this to counter that. But Mm. actually, like, this is distraction and deception and um, what's the word? Yeah,
0: right. Strategy. Misdirection. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Yeah, man. I'd like to play more I haven't really gotten deep enough in it to mm. to get to that stuff, but
2: Yeah, so I need far. to play more as well. Um yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing it. I hope it brings the other factions in. And it looks as though um you're a kind of ticker where for every sector you capture there's almost like flashpoints that are gonna happen that might be
0: designed yeah. missions. it's stuff also there.
2: possible to fail the campaign. Yeah. Which gives it a kind of ex ish kind of yeah, thing. It's
0: quite cool. Like if your flagship is destroyed you lose and if um and if like, there's like a threat level equivalent, I can't remember exactly what it's called mm. in this. Um, but yeah, if the, if, if, um, if the enemy gets too far ahead, it just comes to an end, which, uh, you know, we'll see. Like at the moment, I'm playing it on easy, uh, and that's without shame because I want to get through it and mm. see it, all of it. So I'm not really like, you know, if I get super into the strategy layer, maybe ramp up the difficulty a yeah. bit. Yeah. So far, it's, I'm, I'm really, really it's into good. the spacemen. It's good spacemen. Surprising man. nobody. It's good spacemen. Shall we do some questions from questions? Why not? Okay. First question is an order of business type thing. Matt writes, dear CNC, where is... He's shouting because it's CAPS, CNC D&D part two. <clears throat> and the answer for this is it's coming pretty much. So uh, for a bit of context, I had hoped that we would do this over Christmas, but I underestimated Christmas, kind of <laughs> Christmas but also kind of just how totally knackered um i i particularly i'll take responsibility for this i was at the end of a extremely busy couple of months so decided to take it a little bit easier um i have written the scenario now so it exists Ooh. um alex is joining us and has a character sheet which is very exciting Wonderful. um so um it's in the works i think we just need to sort of carve out a time to record it in a kind of fun and relaxed fashion mm. like i don't know if um i think we did say this but last the D D eight hour D and D campaign we put out last year was all recorded in a single day.
2: <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's a lot
0: of the carnage, which is nuts incidentally. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, and I've done that twice in my life. I did it for the PlayStation access cyberpunk campaign as well. Mm. And, and and seven hours of that is, <laughs> uh, uh, is a, is a bit much. Um So I think the plan is we'll, we'll settle and record it, put it all out at once probably, but mm. I want to do it. Mm. I want to return to those characters. and really have fun ideas. ideas. Really fun. Um, but, um, but yeah. Apologies that it wasn't over Christmas as planned. But I needed to go asleep,
2: <laughs> and it did. Well, we have. A, or we bring back the amazing theme music. The uh, in fact, we have a we have a a, a new edit.
0: Thanks very much Ooh. to music hero Mike Debenham. Slightly sped up. It's not tremendously different, but, um, it is a little sharper, which is Love it. always nice. That's what's what it thing.
1: like when you play Oblivion for the first time and it's like the Morrowind theme, but it has its own grandeur to it. No, I mean, <laughs> it is, I mean, it is the
0: same, you know, piece of music. It's just, I think it's, it's, it's sped up because <laughs> the, there's a dirge quality to the, the first version. Although I am still that, uh, I will say that music reveals one of my favorite things ever in CNC, like, is. <laughs> Mike just produced that music without ask me asking for it. Right. And uh, I want, I knew I wanted it, but I was too nervous to ask like <laughs> an actual talented musician to go away and do a fantasy remix of <laughs> this, the CNC theme, which is obviously um from Clambake, uh by Campo and the Bully, and It's a, you know, a piece of music that already exists. So yeah, for that to exist was, was effing rad. I'm very much looking forward to uh returning to those characters and what happens next.
2: Once you, well, once you do the thing that happens at the end of that campaign. Come to terms with did, did there's just a sheer atrocity really of yeah. it already. I was
0: thinking about making I know what the title of the campaign is and it is a pun, and um I uh might put that out as a poster at some point. But only when we're committed to the recording process and Great. I'm not just putting a poster out for something that doesn't exist. Good times. The Moblin Gosh. <laughs> I'm not not doing that joke again. <laughs> <laughs> that was too hard on your voice last time, I meant. Uh <laughs> I don't know if the – I won't give too much away, but I, I don't know if the the people who liked the first one would forgive me for not forcing myself to do that voice again. <laughs> <laughs> what I'm saying is I don't want to do it for the back half of an eight-hour session. <laughs> yes. <right. laughs> That's reasonable. Um, Okay, that answers that. So uh first question comes from Otto who writes High and Crowbar. I was wondering – what's your outside food policy i'm asking because i noticed some signs saying food needed to be purchased at the bar and apparently your kitchen is closed for the time being also do you serve, serve any micro brews thanks auto uh this is obviously inviting us to a sort of pub based role play session i think the thing we've established very very clearly over the five plus almost six years we've been doing this is that we don't have any kind of food in this room <laughs> it's just drink <laughs> it's just drink and we're on wine tonight yeah we're on wine this mm, evening if you're curious great, a lot of wine yeah, I guess we're on bottle three. <laughs> um, we don't tend to be very much of a beer pod. Tom and I, you, you and I drink beer when we're doing Minutes monthly.
2: Yeah, that's true. I don't know why we do that instead of other stuff. That's because that podcast is eight years long. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, if it we drank, is super long. <laughs> and if we drank uh, liquor, it would be bad. Also, I think it's like, because we played like eight hours of Warhammer often beforehand or five hours yeah. of stuff. Yeah. Like... Yeah, something of bit a It's bit the it's the easy podcast. Is, is Yeah, exactly. Uh,
0: next question comes from Simon, who writes: If FPSs are rock walking simulators, are folk rock management games are classical music, and mobas are discordant avant-garde samples of plate smashing, then what game genre is pop,
1: and which is jazz? I would say like the nuovo finalists in the igf for jazz mm.
2: what, what was the Nuovo who, who who was in the nuovo finalists bracket this that's year? a very good question i can't answer <laughs> yeah. it's so I, I get what you're
0: saying so you know i think i think actually i think you can i think i can answer this so i would say that pop games are like light but well-crafted puzzle games like, a good, a good match three or something that, you know, you could, yeah, pick candy up and crush, enjoy. Definitely like, beautifully crafted, beautifully crafted, you know, there's no, uh, discounting the skill that goes into making something, hmm. but very much adhering to patterns that the audience immediately understands. Actually, I forgot this was a PC game. I could have talked
1: about this. I played Candy Crush over the break. I yeah, we already?
2: talked about that last time. Okay, sure. I was too like, drunk to remember. <laughs> 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 that's a good pop game, though. <laughs> yeah, yeah sure. exactly. exactly. That, that's your pop, right? Yeah. Like you kind of know what you're getting,
0: but you're happy to receive it. Yeah, right. I think your jazz game is your sort um, of like experimental, maybe free or pay what you want, itchio game. Where it's about the mechanics they're not using, man. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but the problem with this is that games, games don't really have like an improvisational quality. It's no, something they struggle no, no. with, right? Like there's no, like we have game jams, but that is still about creating something
2: with a fixed endpoint. <laughs> yeah. The player rarely gets to do anything like that at all. Like the, the closest equivalent I can think of is certain combat systems like Devil May Cry where they're only improvisational within a very yeah. tightly reined in. Mindset. But if you're like, actually bizarrely
0: on the last episode, Tom, we did end up talking about the only way to get around valves anti-cheat to be a kind of jazz counter-strike player <laughs> to, to, right. who behaves so erratically to get around a predictive. AI, yeah, exactly. You know. Um, so, I, but I believe in that most cases being like a jazz fighter wouldn't necessarily earn you the highest scores because games still want you to adhere to a rhythm. Even devil may cry or something. Wants yeah, you sure. to, you know, these games are about combos, not like, oh man, it's about the, it's about the beats you don't hit in the combo, right? Like, hmm.
1: Yeah, that, are games jazz proof? That's the thing I'm telling you this question. Into. I think,
2: I they might
0: think,
1: be. I would say like sandbox games are pretty jazz, because there's no like fixed metric you're trying to, you know, maximize or anything. Hmm. even just Minecraft is just doing what you like and creating your own thing yeah, yeah. and finding your own groove. Mm. A true sandbox. I should,
0: I should mention jazz punk here just because it has the word jazz in the title. And <laughs> someone's going to app us or me if we don't. So. <laughs> yeah, it's a good point. Um, yeah, I think sandbox games are a decent example. Like, yeah, maybe, yeah.
2: Hmm.
0: Next comes from N. who writes, with the critical buzz around more narrative-focused tactics games like Mutant Year Zero... Do you think the next XCOM will put more focus on telling a story with characters instead of the customized squads? The narrative heavy XCOM 2 legacy DLC was very good.
1: I don't know. <laughs> <But> <laughs> Cause I don't work for Firaxis. I don't want them to like, mm-hmm. I don't think I'll be better really. I, I started to play tactic, uh, tactical legacy or whatever it's called. Um, and I, it, it wasn't a fault of this DLC, but I just remembered how much I hate the aggro mechanic in XCOM. Just like this, this blundering into like, yeah. oh, I took one square too far. So now I aggroed them on the last guy's awake turn. Yeah. They all get a free turn on me and now I'm fucked. And it's all down to that. Like that's just all of your success and failure comes down to did you move one square too far with this guy on the end, the wrong? And you can avoid it, but only by doing the super cautious overwatch thing, which, you know, yeah. XCOM has been desperately trying to persuade you not to do um so but yeah it didn't feel like the template for like here's what future XCOM games will be um and i don't know that that series is so i think when they make it xcom 3 it every time they make an, a main xcom game they are going to have to say uh it, it's always going to be seen as an answer to the question of like what should xcom be and so they can't just take you know a, a system z driven game and say no it's going to be story driven this time hmm. uh that would it would just upset too many people. It wouldn't serve the purpose that they want to serve. The thing I, I'm really interested in is like, all the changes I want them to make are things they can't do because XCOM fans would be furious at them for it. And I suppose, like, the, you know, the, the XCOM remake, uh, was quite brave in terms of how much it, it did change from the original. Um, and if they're willing to be that brave again, they could just scrap a lot of, like, just that thing of, like, the metagame, the base building stuff. Has a secret best thing to do, and if you don't do it, you're fucked, and you won't find out you're fucked till 17 hours in, right. <laughs> like that that kind of thing. I just want to see that die, um, yeah. and I don't know if they can do that whilst keeping XCOM fans happy.
0: I just want them to add kissing, <laughs> like that's the narrative depth I would like mm. to add. Like, just that's all anyone wants, right? You want the relationships between the soldiers to blossom
1: into love, yeah, so that they can die tragically on the battlefield. Well, the chosen start to take some steps in that direction with like soldier mons and stuff, Yeah. And they, they can clearly go so much further with that. And exactly. It's really good. I mean, you know, it's at the moment it comes. further. Like, I respect you professionally, and what I think it
0: needs is a sort of procedural cop show style. When are they going to finally do it? <laughs>
1: sort of tension. <laughs> you know what I mean? Actually, there's something kind of cool that I, I hadn't thought about myself so much from playing, but everyone has a inherent, they have a natural like compatibility rating. And that does not limit their bond rating, but it affects how fast their bond levels up. Mm. And uh, I just saw sort of a tweet from someone saying like, like, oh, you think just because these two main plot characters have a 5% compatibility rating that I'm not going to ship them. Well, I'm just <laughs> going to put them on every fucking mission together <laughs> yeah. until they goddamn get it together.
0: Yeah. I and mean, that is a, a time honored dramatic <laughs> impetus. Um, and I think more games need to accept that, you know, this, that is the fuel that fires a dozen, like, American TV shows of, of all kinds of crime types. <laughs> is it? You know? It's Fire Emblem. More people should steal yeah. mechanics. Whole like Fire, F- Fire yeah, Emblem. I mean, Fire Emblem has like the fact that all the characters are pre-designed. That's right? true. That, that, there that, are so many of them. There are so many of them. It's almost like the procedural. Yeah. <laughs> um, That's good. Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I think I said after Jude Macquarie*, sorry, not McCory, Battletech, hmm. that the only thing I really wanted for that game to have is like, you know, shipboard. You know, romance between missions, people getting in in TIFFs, you know, thing of the week, because those procedural strategy games are, are functionally sort of procedural, like procedurally in in the TV sense in that it's like mission of the day type. Mm-hmm. Plus, I know what they need to add is the thing that you do if you're writing a mystery, m- murder mystery show or something, which is also add the personal character drama of the day that runs alongside yeah. the mission is maybe informed by it. Hmm. That is the dimension that they're missing. The level is like this person's trying to figure out how they feel about the fact that this person wants kids and they don't. But also it's a hot drop
2: onto Stygies 5. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, but then I don't know why we don't see more of this sort of thing in games because so many articles have been written about Mass Effect and you know dra- you know Bioware relationship stuff yeah. about the characters there and what that says about them and what choices people made about who the, mm. who the relationships they choose chose to pursue and that ran alongside a nerdy as fuck sci-fi epic and why why can't we have more of both of that yeah you know, I, I, I think it's, it's just uh, hard to write asking for a friend who is me uh <laughs>
1: do you think that kind of romance stuff for the player to be engaged with that do they have to be playing a single character that they've like customized and no them? i No, the sims proves otherwise
0: like right People want to bash their action figures together <laughs> in a sexy way. You know Good. what I mean? Good. I'll tell my wizards <laughs> make the wizards kiss. <laughs> right.
1: It's broadcast now. It's online. <laughs> because that's the. It also answers the XCOM full well. <laughs> <laughs> Like if you want romance in XCOM, oh, people are people going to care about it enough? And I, like an XCOM. Probably, yes, because you're super invested in your characters because you know they could die at any time. Hmm. But if you have, like, a limited number of plot characters but you're not specifically playing as any given one of them, they're just a cast of characters. I think games have traditionally been... Like, I think I
0: think there's so many games recently... I wrote about this recently for some of the last i did for PC Gamer, but, like, there are so many games recently that prove that as soon as you open up whatever sort of, like, the world of the game is to different types of experience, you start getting fan bases you don't expect yeah you know there are a couple examples that you could use for this but one of the ones i always think about is dishonored which is definitely like a you know post ion storm immersive sim with the legacy you know bearing up the legacy of uh thief and deus ex and hitman but because its art style was more robust and original and because it showcased different kinds of characters it suddenly gained this Huge uh, and very devoted fandom around its fiction mm-hmm. that engaged with it in a very different, but no less valid way. And the reason you don't have that kind of fandoms bringing up around Deus Ex is because Deus Ex is aesthetically super boring. Like it's really <laughs> generic cyberpunk. It's, super it's, inflexible. it's an amazing yeah. game, but it's, it's extremely inflexible, very mm-hmm. derivative cyberpunk. Mm-hmm. And you know, because Dishonored was uh, aesthetically kind of far braver and more interesting. You gain all these other fans and you mm. diversify your fan base and in diversifying the fan base, you diversify the people who, uh, want to make games and, and things. And it's basically just only good.
2: Mm. And that is, thank you for coming to my TED talk about <laughs> where <X-Con laughs> needs shagging. <laughs> like there is a, there is a, a really big challenge that comes with this sort of thing where I've been playing, um, uh, strategy series. I can't talk about just yet, but mm. it runs into this problem where you can, actually simulate a lot of this stuff and have it happening but it's already hard enough to communicate to the player what's going on with just basic stats and basic (laughs) leveling up and basic roles and classes and also having this kind of communicating relationship stuff at the same time that might not be super useful to a lot lot of players might not just care about at all yeah it's like how do you surface that how do you actually communicate it how much should it mechanically Entwine with you know the, this, the, the the other systems in the game. Yeah, raises a lot more
1: problems. My feeling is there's like a common designer's instinct to like, oh, wouldn't it be cool if like what you do in the gameplay has an effect on the story and and vice versa, and like tangle those things together as much as possible. And then in practice, as a player, you usually end up resenting that stuff because mm. it's like, well. I, I like, really like this guy's fun ability, but I don't really care about that character in the story. So now I've got to like shelve him because actually I want to level up this bond and I've got to play with those two characters. I don't really like their mechanics, but I plot wise, I want them to get together. Right. I actually think it's better to keep those two things separate. And like, if you want two characters to get together, make that a dialogue choice and just those two characters are going to have a conversation and you get to choose how they talk to each other and mm. like what their relationship mm. is. And that isn't, you don't have to have played with those two characters on every single mission up until that point or you don't have to sacrifice like how you want to play the game to do that.
2: Yeah. I mean, I, maybe that's why it works so well in Bioware games where, um, they're never me- mechanically su- super strong, really, like as games. And also the relationship stuff is separate from the combat systems. Like they're very, very separate parts of the game and I almost feel like they're developed by different people. But, um, they're, they're, the plot stuff has genuinely forks and changes based on the relationships that you have with the characters mm. in a Bioware game. And I don't know how you do that with XCOM really beyond bonuses but fire does it well like, yeah it things i think being at a remove makes it easier because it's like oh nice for those two i don't really need to
0: intervene with their minds. <laughs> that's true you know next question comes from uh peter who writes is artifact a dead game and i don't want to dwell on this because i know that i'm like the, the number one artifact fan and, and there's been a lot of stories in the news recently about it losing 95 percent of its players and all this stuff hmm. I can only speak from anecdotal evidence, but I have seen no change in the speed at which you find a game of Artifact. Yeah. And I played that game in closed beta when there were 300 people in the world and it took 10 minutes to get a game. And, you know, yesterday during my lunch break, so we're talking 1.30 PM UK time, middle of the day, I loaded it up, pressed play, and was playing immediately. So... I don't know. Like, it doesn't feel like it. It feels like those narratives can kill a game, even if they're not actually dead, which sucks. Hmm. Um, I think it's obviously going to kind of struggle. And I suspect it's probably got some kind of reinvention in its future. But it's still Hmm. a game I like a lot. And I've seen no practical evidence as a player that its player base is suffering. In fact, I suspect that the stats people are leaning on for those stories are not wholly representative of its whole fan base particularly because there's a lot of players in china for example and i don't know if they're being tracked in the same way for example you know there's lots of things that could be potential answers for that particular thing
2: player numbers like it is an online game like it is about getting a game like so it's reasonable for people to cover the fact that a fan base is shrinking or a player base Mm. is shrinking but yeah you should back that up with testing you know testing how easy it is to get a game because that's that's fundamentally the point but they could they could relaunch it at any time and introduce a load of new i mean Alone you kind of look like progression mechanics and stuff that might actually keep people playing it. Um but they didn't do any marketing around that game. They didn't market it at all, really. They had Richard Garfield doing some YouTube boring YouTube videos about upkeep yeah. costs and stuff. But Val just didn't push it out properly. Yeah. I, that I wasn't think, part of the I think they, they, they in that. some
0: ways let the narrative be determined for them. Yeah. And it became about the, the payment stuff and it's
2: far less egregious than most games like that. It's just but, badly I mean, communicated. They and... left it at the very last minute to announce even how it looked like, you know, the, yeah. it was I mean, this is why marketing people do get paid quite a lot of money to try and manage this stuff and control the story around these games because it has an effect and it's really important <laughs> and uh, Artifact's yeah. a fucking cool game. I really like it. Uh, I don't like enough to spend £100 on it which is kind of what I feel I need to, to actually Mm. unlock its true potential. And that is the truth about the game that perhaps needs to be communicated earlier. Like what type of game this was. Like this is going to be a hardcore thing. It's a high investment hobby. It's a high investment hobby game. And the rewards are going to be rad. There's going to be tournaments. There's going to be loads of stuff. Actually get a lot of those people who are in the early stages of the beta and testing it to stream it and market it for you and Mm. do all that stuff. And just none of that happened. They did do that.
0: Yeah. But just not very broadly. Hmm. Like they did, give individual cards to like high-profile Hearthstone players to reveal hmm. and things like that. I think they they'd made a a, a definite
2: attempt at marketing. I just don't think it worked. No, hmm. the game's cool though. The game is really cool. They, they, like Valve has has the resources to keep it alive. And six months time, we launch it with a new progression system. And yeah, I mean they already added a progression system.
0: Yes, yeah. yeah, you know they probably just need to. They do, didn't
2: tell us, <laughs> PC gamer. Yeah, they didn't tell. They, they did a blog post about it. Okay, But yeah good yeah another blood post on the internet like no one's just going to stumble across that you've got to actually put it out there you've got to yeah you know push out and make the message happen yeah
0: luke writes other than let's play archives by talented amateurs do any of you all know any other long-form gaming playthroughs like tom f's two gal pieces that's from luke
1: uh, I wanted to give a shout out to um Robin Birkinshaw's uh Sims diary, uh Alison Kev,
0: mm. which is um which is just think it's been appearing just... in like Creighton crowbar
1: and PC gamer show notes yeah, since it's it's one of yeah. the all time greats and yeah. You should read
2: it. <laughs> you don't need to know anything more about it. Mm. Yeah, that's the thing that springs to my mind as well. Yeah, for sure. Um it depends what you mean by log form, I suppose. Like we've we run loads of diaries all the time, but um it says like super lovable stuff. Like a like a wee book. Like a wee book? Like the, the girl <laughs> which is what was lovely about the The, <laughs> yeah, exactly. the diaries ran in like a tiny book. Was the, second the second one, one was, a, was a tiny yeah. book, yeah. <laughs> which was lovely.
1: Um uh, actually yeah, just uh to give a shout out, um Robin is about to release a Sims four mod that is mm. like modding the emotion system in Sims4. I don't know mm. a lot about it, but he just tweeted about it recently. And this is newsworthy to me because he tweets about Once every three years. (laughs) Which is the right amount. If you're wondering, (laughs) that's the right. That's correct. Yeah.
0: Uh, Next, uh, Takuna writes, watcher. I know virtually nothing about game development outside what I hear on this podcast. And I'm always a bit confused about critiques surrounding game engine choice. On the one hand, you hear the usual mob bemoaning that something was made in unity or some such. And then on the other hand, there's another camp that claims that the engine itself really makes no difference to how the game ultimately turns out or feels. But why, then, is it that some engines feel so obvious when you play games made with them? There's something distinctly source about source, although I'd have trouble describing it. And engines like Quake can be quite discernible, with no prior knowledge as to what was used as well. So if a developer can take almost any game engine and turn out basically whatever they want, what is it about the engines that give them a particular signature when played? Lots of love and
1: kisses. to Kuna. Mm. so i think there's a big self fulfilling prophecy here for for people who think they are like oh this this game made in this engine you can tell it's made in this engine uh you only think that when you already know what engine is made in and mm. so i'm there are a lot of people who don't know heat is made in game maker even though i openly say that all the time and it's you know couldn't be more public about it um it's still a surprise to many people and so anyone who doesn't you know didn't follow its development didn't have any particular reason to find that information out plays it never finds out it was made in GameMaker. Unless you like watch the credits and, and get to that point. And even then you've got to be paying attention to notice, oh that's when they say GameMaker they mean that's the engine it was made in. Oh, okay. And, and then you've got to know what GameMaker is and you gotta know what it is. Um and so yeah, it's a big self-wearing There's there's I mean even with gunpoint people it would sometimes be surprised that game, that gunpoint was made in Game Maker, which seems ridiculous in retrospect. Cause it's like, <laughs> that's exactly what you're making Game Maker. It's a 2D side on platformer. That's what Game Maker is good for. But Game Maker was kind of cursed for a long time and still is t- to a lesser extent, uh, with the thing of like things that, things made by things made as test projects, uh, when people are learning the ropes mm. for the first time ever that they made in one week that they put out there. Everyone knows those are made in game maker. Yeah. But not everyone knows the Hyperlight Drifter is made in game maker or Hotline Miami, unless that's a big, you know, thing that game maker. was made in game maker. Yeah. Huh. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I, I wish I had a, like an encyclopedic knowledge of that stuff because there are, you know, eight other oh. examples that, that, you know, some of which might be surprising. Um, to any given person. So yeah, it's a self-willing prophecy in that if you, if you can't tell what engine it's made in, you don't know what engine is made in so you don't get to, to expand your mind about what that engine can do because mm. um you don't find out. Um And yeah, there was a time when Unity had a feel. <laughs> like, I mean, mm. Unity, like if someone hasn't, hasn't changed how Unity starts up, then you see this familiar dialogue That's and it's like, this is... Talks about
2: that, yeah. Yeah.
1: And it, that has become like almost a meme now like in terms of like the quality settings. Yes. Like, you leave this dialogue, it's a, it's a really useful window just to have something that launches before your game launches that lets you set the resolution and the quality settings and stu- and controls and stuff. Yeah. Because if you get the, the resolution wrong when you launch your game, you restart it. Uh, the player doesn't know you got it wrong and they're just like, what the fuck happened? I don't know. I, I can't change anything. Yeah. Uh, so there is a reason to have like a little windows dialogue box as amateurish as it looks. Um, but then you can name those quality settings and there is a whole like, I feel like there's a whole genre of uh, <laughs> of comedy that in naming those settings, yeah. like West of Loathing just has good, bad and ugly, which is <laughs> really good for a Western game. <laughs> yeah. And I can't remember the... Um, uh, mysterious island frog mystery grace brachner game one but i remember them being great yeah. <laughs> it's
0: i mean it's partly because the 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 unity defaults of like good great fantastic is a tremendous cop out from <laughs> <Yes. laughs> whoever wrote that that default text yeah like that is a complete abdication of responsibility <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it always
1: defaults to like mediocre or something for yeah, some reason yeah uh, but yeah, there were a million Unity games. For example, I don't think Firewatch has that menu when you start it up. Like, there are a lot of Unity games that do not do that. Hearthstone is a Unity game. I don't know if you yep. know that. <laughs> yeah,
0: precisely. I feel yeah. like, because, I mean, and I, I have this thing of, like, I feel like I know you're talking about, you think you can identify a FPS engine, particularly on a feel basis. Because, yeah. like, the Source engine for me is, like, an echoey room and <laughs> the ability to throw cans but every time there's
1: a level low, there's the sound stutters and stuff. Yeah, like
0: that sound as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, this is we're, we're, we're at risk of wandering back into that kind of weird Quake ASMR territory. <laughs> <laughs> but like that is those are what I'm describing. There are specific features of Half Life,
1: hmm. not things that you yeah. have to do with the Source Engine. Because and reason- Dota is in the Source Engine. Yeah. And one of the reasons the source engine has a more distinctive feel than some other engines is because Valve don't license it out that much. So most of the source engine games are made by Valve. (laughs) So all of the Valve you know, institutional knowledge and and habits and practices will be in there that aren't necessarily a requirement of the engine. I mean, also literally like half of the... You know, for years, half of the, sorry, that doesn't work,
0: sound effects in Dota were taken from Half-Life. <laughs> like, yeah. if you clicked it, like, it was just going like, ah, ah. And in a fantasy game, because, mm, fuck it, like, why make two sound effects that mean no? But then, like, like
2: Xenoclash was source, right? Yeah. You play that, and you're like, mm. well, how would you ever tell? Like, unless you're, like, really technically minded and understand the yeah, difference exactly. the yeah. engines, precisely, you're just not going to know. Stanley but, uh, Powell. So it feels like the 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 quirks of these engines almost come out through their UI. So it's yeah. almost like the particular grey loading screen in uh, original source and, you know, in the Half-Life of 2 engine. So that, that small map thing where you have to constantly load quite often and these days it's very fast. Mm. But a little grey uh, box pops up and a very <laughs> specific loading screen pops up. And it's like, Oh yeah, I'm in source now. And that's, that's what kind of identifies. It's like, well, it's by, like there's,
0: like, there's going to be a generation of players in the future that don't know what it means to switch from the game you're playing to a lower resolution bink video <laughs> 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 of a thing that yeah, is absolutely. happening to the characters you were just looking at. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and like that, you know, you know what's happening when that's happening, but it has nothing to do with the,
1: you know, hmm. I'm old enough to remember like the, the era when it flipped from, like, oh, now the in-engine stuff looks better than the shitty Bink video, yeah. <laughs> whereas yeah. in the olden days, the Bink video always looked amazing, and, like, the in-engine stuff was terrible. Whatever happened to Bink? <laughs> Good old... Uh, I believe Bink is part of Rad Video Game Tools. <laughs> like, a the name of, of the thing you buy. A
0: series of, like, natural wands rolled on the video game <laughs> gaming table. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> from Bink to Rad... Uh, the saddest axis yeah the syllables that we have had to say Um, what next one maybe perhaps yes Billy writes probe and pylon I do not know if you've been keeping up with Starcraft 2 I've recently got back into watching the professional scene and even picking up a game or two meaning that I've caught a few streams after sitting down after work today I tuned into a, a Starcraft 2 pro game against an AI which I suppose is another honk on the doom horn for humanity. The AI, the AI one, doing weird left-field strategies. In short, what do you think about the application of AI to competitive games? And could this application apply more broadly to video games? Also, are we all going to die? Keep up the good work, Billy. Sadly, we
2: are all going to die. We will all die. It may not be... Well, not uh, necessarily AI, from a StarCraft. If I am yeah. saved yeah. <laughs> by a StarCraft bot... <laughs> This is this episode. Enjoy the irony, <laughs> uh, but uh, surely the fun thing about competitive play is that it's one human beating another human. Like, even if you have people AIs. have enjoyed watching that for time. More. Yeah, I mean, I mean uh, computers have sort of yeah. solved chess, but we still have really. Yeah, it's you know, about
0: the you know people trying to overcome their own limitations, yeah, right? It's like, right. it's yeah. This is the the best analogy. Is it is still fun to watch? um a foot race even though cars exist like you know if if one day elon musk were to show up at the fucking hundred meter sprint and go like i've made a rocket and you like you'd say you'd say fuck off elon I mean, that's, that's what you'd not nor- point it's what you'd normally say to elon musk. <laughs> yeah
2: it is yeah in many contexts but yeah, you've yeah especially exactly
0: you know you would tell him to piss off and, and for good reason oh, yes. because the point is not can how fast can this be done Hmm. it's how fast can a human do it because that's principally what we're interested in as
1: humans i do find it really interesting when ai uh finds a weird strategy humans never would have considered that turns out to be super effective Mm. especially because it kind of not because it reveals something about the ai but because it reveals something about the humans (laughs) it's like Hmm. um yeah right i can't remember a lot of specifics but alex has talked about a sort of ai competition where they had to sort of they introduced ai um that could sort of, you know, design ships or something, and its strategy was just incredibly degenerate. It was just like, oh, I just want the maximum number of ships, all of which have two damage or something, and mm-hmm. that just wins. And they had to just sort of fudge the rules, like, uh, you can't do that. <laughs> you can do uh, something else, but not that. There's um, um, Yeah, like, I mean, it, that tells you, like, humans... You know, humans had access to that. They could have done that and it would have won, but nobody thought to do that because they just, there's something in their brain that told them, no, that doesn't make sense or it wouldn't be effective or there's some reason that that doesn't work out. Mm. And the AI just has no such preconceptions. It's just like, I'll just try everything. Oh, that works super well. We'll do that. <laughs> there was a good example of this recently. Like,
0: and I think because you're right, what this always reveals is the question being asked by the original human rather mm. than the AI itself at the moment. There's a really good example of this recently and I'm going to fudge this, I suspect, because more than two bottles of wine and also it's, it was a while ago, but there was an example of an AI that I think was tasked with um, generating a sort of Google map style abstract street map from an original satellite image. Um, and then I think the idea was, can it also um, like uh, I think the question was either like, can it get the sort of logic of the roads right from a satellite image And can it, um, sort of be, uh, used to sort of, uh, does it under the question was essentially for the AI, like, does it logically understand the logic of these roads in a way that it could generate a realistic satellite image from Mm. the original data? I think that's right. It might be wrong. The point is that the AI instead just developed a way of cheating at the test (laughs) being set by inventing it's basically its own form of steganography where it would encode the original satellite image into the data of the <laughs> abstract image. So when it was asked so to like, how, back, how do you, re- how do you, how can you regenerate? And because people figured this out because it's recreations where I think uncannily accurate, like it would, <laughs> it would know where the trees were. There was no way if it could know that. And it's because it, it knew what it was being tested on because that's what it was, you know, the criteria for success were. So it would just find a way of hiding that data. So there were sort of imperceptible layers of data in the sort of gradations <laughs> like of beige, basically like a watermark or steganography <laughs> on top of the image that, concealed all of the data it needed mm. to completely reconstruct the original satellite image. <laughs> and that's really cool,
1: because it's like... What scares me is we're going to say, like, we're going to tell the AI, hey, no, we see you're cheating, you don't do that. And then it's just going to get better at cheating. Because, <laughs> <Yeah, exactly. laughs> like, we- us as humans, listen to that and think, oh, we know how to cheat on tests. You don't, you don't like, encode information that you couldn't possibly have. You think about what it's feasible that you could have yeah. had. Be and sentient,
0: now, damn it, no. Once, <laughs> once AIs can do that,
1: that's, that's even worse. Yeah. Did you see that thing about... um on the xbox not 360 but the previous one like i guess the original xbox like they or maybe it's a previous version of the interface but uh your little xbox me or whatever it's called avatar yeah uh, has little rings pulsing on its feet oh, i and didn't see this. encoded yeah. in the oh, frequency yeah. of those rings is a unique id to you so if you leak a screenshot of the xbox interface ahead of time they can look at those rings i think i think one screenshot is not enough but if there's a video they can totally do it and if there's a couple of screenshots they can figure it out Mm. they can measure the distance between the rings
2: to figure out the serial number of your xbox and know who you are (laughs) i love the idea based on that you know this kind of procedural cheating we're talking about which um i think came up with the last episode as well like the idea that we perhaps might need to really patronize ais (laughs) and just sort of pretend like oh you got me you got me and then just leave though all those flaws in place so that in future we can like actually see like, oh, just yeah. let, let them, let's allow this system to think that this is a good way of, you know, is uh, obviously at that point it becomes redundant because it's not going to do the job you want it to do. But, uh, yeah. 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 I don't know, They've built in flaws.
0: I think there is something in trying to watch someone. Like, again, this is the thing I always come back to. Me. It's about the human drama. Like there is, there is mileage in watching a person trying to overcome the AI or trying to overcome a system. That's the heart of speedruns for mm-hmm. one thing. Mm-hmm. You know, that, that has, that has legs because again, it's a, it's a personal drama. And even to the extent we're watching two AI going at it, uh, not kissing this time, but, um, simply <laughs> fighting, um, is in a sense robot wars. It's still about the people <laughs> who made the robots. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, it is like turtles, kind of people all the way down with this sort of thing. So I don't think you can ever say like, you know would it you know are we all doomed like essentially yeah to answer that part of the question are we doomed no because it's presently everything we find interesting about ai is really what we find interesting about the people who framed its bounds or or established its interest level you know what i mean that kind of
1: thing yeah i'd be interested to know if you could give a deep learning algorithm like a list of materials and ways to build robots, so that I could design robot wars contestants <laughs> and see how the AI. And that's how Tom Francis destroyed the world.
0: <laughs> <laughs> but then presumably it would become about the person who would build the best robot to
1: design the best robot, <laughs> perhaps. Because, like, the wedge thing in Robot Wars was kind of like, oh, yeah. we- humans finding a bug in the system, but I-, I bet if you put AIs to the task, they'd find a different bug like, that it's yeah. the wedge. Well, it's like, it like, yeah, it like, yeah, the the universe's deadliest foe.
0: Like, the mobile doorstop. Yeah. It's like, we can't... Oh, a it, can stop, oh, it can stop a
2: door, and that's the thing we use to secure everything <laughs> in the world. I love that at one point, the Robot Wars meta was wedge versus hypnodisc. <laughs> <laughs> And that was like a legit kind of like, what do we all, what do, what do, uh middle-aged British men and their sons do in garages now that Hitler has been invented? Exactly. <laughs> like, what is the counter? What to was the hypno disc? It was basically just uh, a small oblong with a very big disc on the front that rotated <laughs> and at greater and greater speeds, with little kind of nodules on it that gave it weight, and as soon as it contacted. In even the slightest manner with another robot, <laughs> the other robot would just fucking melt. <laughs> it was just obliterate it. And so wedges to come and try and get underneath it, and like it could be flipped, and it had no like self-writing mechanism, which is a part of the robot was messed at the time. <laughs> uh, and and yeah, you know, if this thing just touched the flipper or part of the wedge, just all of these like very carefully you know i feel like we've got sorry. armor panels which shatter into this the stadium basically i feel like we've got
0: an international listenership that may not be aware of robot wars in which case <laughs> what i need you to imagine is imagine a time where in the 90s uh britain embarked on a series of kind of like dystopian mad max battles to the death between roombas, mm. <laughs> and did this um because it was the 90s i think the early noughties maybe craig charles was there craig charles was there it was good like
2: all sci-fi scenarios yeah like well like any given club in bristol craig charles was there um and there was a referee called sir killer lot which was (laughs) himself a giant robot he had like a hammer i think i think he had um he had a spear that was useless and i don't know one of them had a flamethrower it's very blurry it's very blurry because it was on a crt tv yes
0: um good well
2: robot was meta it was about time we talked about that on the robot <laughs> yeah, podcast. <we> <laughs> Flipping or Hypno
1: Wheel? I really want to ask Mike Cook about Robot Wars now. Yeah. <laughs> so I could have valuable opinions. Oh, there's. Oh, no. Let's not get into it.
2: Let's <laughs> <laughs> just not. Uh, oh, boy. It's
1: Does incredible. anyone try making a really hot robot? <laughs> it's, it's what do you just mean? It's superheated so it melts the other oh, robot. I, oh. I thought you
0: meant sexy because I thought we were going into the
2: XCOM meta. <laughs> like. Uh, Mass Effect tried that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Hmm. There's what? Uh, <laughs> no, I, I can't <laughs> I can't keep going into like robot wars stories. I just can't explain. <laughs> I feel
0: like if we cover off like Warhammer 40k and robot wars in a single sentence, it's too much, like, isn't it? It's we've too much. like yeah, robot wars. <clears throat> <clears throat> All right, Aiden writes. Hi, in your latest pod, Tom came to a late realization of the joke in the title of Fortune Four Nine Nine. I've had a similar experience with a couple of puns that were written by Americans. I'm from Suffolk and sound closest to Marsh. There's an owl in Kingdom of Loathing that teaches you the game called the Toot Oriole. I only <laughs> I only recently realized that this was a pun on tutorial. Um Secondly, some American pie derivative has a joke uh, sorry, has a jock shout what comes before part B? Part A when it should clearly be what comes after part D, part E.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I love how just like scholarly and sensible that sounds. Yeah, exactly.
0: (laughs) Well, logically it would be E. Can you think of any puns you did or didn't get? Thanks, Aiden. I think that's mostly just a very good email. Yeah.
1: This is, uh, it's also a pet, uh, topic of mine. Um, I'm fascinated by the game titles that have puns in them that people don't get because it's mm. like invisible ink is a classic one. Yeah. A lot of people don't realize it's a pun. It, like it's spelt like invisible incorporated, but it's a pun on invisible ink as in an ink that disappears. No, oh, uh, I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> I thought for a second. <laughs> uh, the one that took me uh, years to get was murdered soul suspect, which is spelt like soul as in your spirit spirit. spirit um but obviously it also is a play on being the only suspect which i didn't get for ages i think they they fucked that for a lot of reasons It's not a very good game but also
0: because it's a subtitle it should just be called soul suspect if it was called soul suspect Mm. that'd be fine Mm. and then the poem is alone but because it's murdered colon soul suspect
1: it just doesn't quite yeah murdered is a bad name for a game as well no man's sky it's not like a pun or a sort of play on words exactly but it's a riff on obviously no man's land and uh I I sort of, I tweeted that because I had a thread of these things going of, of things people were like, oh, <laughs> um and one of the people who went, oh, on No Man's Sky was Will Porter, who was a writer on No Man's Sky.
0: <laughs> I, yeah, I never really particularly liked the No Man's Sky pun, hmm. because I don't think that's the part of No Man's Land you'd necessarily pull out as, <laughs> like, switch-outable, necessarily. A- like, you could go for, like, some man's land. <laughs> like, I get where you're going with that.
1: <laughs> you think it should have been called some man's land? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Not some on I think land. it should have
0: been called not all man's land. That's what <laughs> um. Also, it makes me think of um, "One Man Guy" by Rufus Wainwright, and maybe also Loudon Wainwright. I'm not sure if it's both of them. Um, yeah. Sorry, that was a complete <laughs> fucking moment. Um, anyone else got any puns they don't
1: understand? I can't think of any at the moment. There's gotta be some involving Z and Z, right? Like some, mm. I mean like. I don't, is Daisy an intentional pun? Uh, <laughs> we all say Daisy right now, yeah. no one really says Day Z.
0: Yeah, but like what's the purpose of it being Daisy? <laughs>
1: Yeah, I don't know.
2: <laughs> yeah, I'm sure that wasn't uh, intended. The
1: only, like, American Z pun that, that doesn't translate at all that uh, I can think of off the top of my head is, uh, the lazy boy chair, which is not a game, it's a chair. <laughs> <laughs> but lazy boy doesn't work. Oh, um Oh, damn it. There's a band with Z in the name that doesn't work if you say Z
0: That listeners was six seconds of dead air. <laughs> Or at least it felt like it. Next is this erif, who writes more with information than a question. tommy you look like you're about to answer a thing that hasn't
1: said. "z Top? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it sounds worse in British English. <laughs> it's not really a, like a pawn in American English, right? Is it? It's
0: easy. No, I don't think it is. I think it's just a name. name is. I think it is just a name. I don't mm. think there's a... If you're American and ZZ Top <laughs> is a reference, then please, please let me know. Hey, <laughs> oh, there's me. like EZ is used a lot in American things, like EZ. EZ, yeah, EZ, EZ, mm. yeah.
1: In fact, e- maybe even GG EZ is a thing people say, like I'm yeah. watching shit, that like if you pronounce it in America, in British English, it doesn't make any sense. Yeah. GG EZ, what was that? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, good game, good lizard. <laughs>
0: What are we talking about? <laughs> We've had too much wine. Sorry. The, <laughs> the the last and final uh, uh, email uh, that we have time for is from Veer Serif, who writes, uh, with a lesser question, more a uh, pro tip. Dear CNC, do you like googly eyes? I like googly eyes. Try clicking the eight in the title of the Crate and Crowbar Discord Game of the Year page. Uh, and I can verify that if you do this, then, and we will link it again in the show notes. Good, good job getting it into the show notes for a second time. Um, then yes, they do gain the nominees. Excellent <laughs> and very well implemented googly eyes, mm. not least the Obridin compass. Yeah, I was very impressed by this. <laughs> <laughs>
1: um,
0: and while you're at it, Vitariff writes, hover your mouse over Subnautica's well deserved goatee ribbon for eight seconds. You can thank Discord later. Um, what this results in, and I kind of want to just. You're going to spoil it. T- uh, should I?
1: You could have said so, spoil I it. think you should. Because <laughs> I don't think it's enough of a plot thing. Yeah. <laughs> people are plot be- thing.
0: <laughs> It adds the secret I result zero. And people have had a sufficient ten. warning now. If they want to try it for themselves, they yeah, can. Yeah. now, claws yeah. now. Uh, spoilers for a joke I don't know how it started <laughs> that I live with. Um, if you, yes, it becomes, uh, and I think, uh, I think Kane even maybe tried to tease this, it becomes in zeroth place. Therefore the actual game of the year or indeed off the scale and therefore maybe the worst game of the year, um, is, uh, my photoshopped face. And then you're treated to a montage of my face, uh, photoshopped in various ways, sometimes not photoshopped. Sometimes it's just a screen grab from a movie I made as a student. <laughs> and I, I mean, I, I, I think Horrowing i fate. Yeah, exactly. In many ways. Um, but also the googly eyes things. Uh, but also the great thing about this and the thing I really truly appreciate about it is the googly eye gag has also been applied to the photoshopped photos of me from various
2: points in the last decade <laughs> and a bit of my life. Okay, if you're, if you're interested in that niche. Yeah, exactly. Interest,
0: yeah. Right um, and uh, that is a, a Venn diagram that I n- I didn't even really think either circle would exist. The fact that it does is a source of, I guess, just reflection
1: more than anything else. (laughs) Industries of Titan. That's another pun title that not everyone gets. And it's a play on Titans of Industry. Oh, (laughs)
2: and uh i
1: interviewed andy Wynn, who's the sort of creative director on that project and he also did not get it when he joined the project or oh, when he was first approached about it he didn't get the title so tom i really appreciate you taking this time to return to answering a different
0: question <laughs> than the one literally about i why- knew
1: there were more i knew yeah, there were others in yeah. back of my head <laughs> hmm
0: Good. That is all of the questions and emails and things we have time for this evening. If you'd like to send us one of them for this, uh, you may do. Doing so <laughs> involves emailing questions at Creightoncrobar.com or tweeting us at CreightonCrowbar. Uh, thanks as ever to our Patreon supporters, uh, what who done back us on Patreon. Find out how the Patreon do. <laughs> at patreon.com forward slash crate and crowbar. We have a YouTube for some reason. YouTube.com forward slash crate and crowbar. You may also find our Discord, which is excellent and full of people who are very good at jokes and thoughts and, and eyes. <laughs> <laughs> Compressed of all those things, like a shoggoth. <laughs> um, you, uh, like a funny shoggoth. You may find it on Discord. The link is in our website, <laughs> com. <critandcrowbar.com>. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> uh, finally, if you'd like to follow us as individuals on Twitter, I can be reached at Thurston. that's C-T-H-U-R-S-T-E-N,
2: what was that? <laughs> still thinking about Robot Wars. <laughs> uh, we, th- we lost Tom Senior about ten minutes ago. Yeah, sorry, I was <laughs> we kind of like this entire time, Fugue State. Oh,
0: yeah. Just, sorry. If you need to know anything about Robot Wars, just watch the spaced episode about Robot Wars.
2: It Involves the robot named Warbastard, which has influenced <laughs> all
1: of my thinking ever since I heard. I that. think it's influenced
2: <laughs> all of British indie game development. Yeah, yeah, yeah for sure, for sure. Um, I'm on Twitter. I don't use it very much, um, but nonetheless, if you want to see a picture of um Brendan Fraser's face wrapped around a paint tin as my avatar, then you can encounter that at pcgludo.com. Dot com? dot com. Someone find out that,
0: like, pip.biz, which is what Pip gave her contact details on the last pod, is actually, like, a site with a contact form. Please do not fill in the Pip.biz contact form. It isn't real Pip. We didn't... <laughs> we don't know who you're giving your details it cannot to. cannot be reached you know we are
1: not one of those cool podcasts that registers, like, 17 different URLs and they're all, like, funny jokes. Yeah. One day, Tom. One day. Uh I do use Twitter a lot and I'm at Pentadact. P E N T A D A C T. Good for Tom. Nothing. And good for the causes of Tom. <laughs>
0: <laughs> That's what the Conservative government says. <laughs> That's the creative crib on men. Fucking hell.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> Thanks, Thanks for listening, everybody.
1: everybody.